Ah, Kapla again, and welcome back, friends, to this Klingon-themed series of the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast. Uh, we are back with you to review another a couple of Klingon episodes. It's a two-part story this week. Uh, we are looking at the Next Generation episode, Redemption. That's parts one and two, obviously. Uh, but I can't do this alone. I have guests with me, and I have two kind of returning guests with me today, but two guests who have not really done a, a regular Hit or Miss podcast episode. Uh, first of all, you will uh, potentially recognize his voice from our Star Trek First Contact review uh, from the, let's get this right, Starfleet Leadership Academy podcast, I believe, <laughs> Jeff Aiken. Welcome. That's the, that's the one. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. And uh, as I was making notes on this episode, it occurred to me that it wasn't intended this way, but there's an awful lot of leadership stuff you could talk about in these episodes. So, yeah, I'm going to be coming to you, I think, quite a lot for uh, what do you make of this leadership situation, Jeff? So, well, I'm not going to lie. Most of my notes are related to that. So we, oh, we good. definitely dive in. There's a, a lot of it, yeah. So a bit of a busman's holiday for you, I'm afraid, on this one. But, uh, yeah, awesome. And uh, you will uh, also hear another voice. We are joined from our Star Trek Picard full series review by Sandra Evanson. Hello. Hello. Good to be here also. Uh, yeah, this is your first official hit or miss, but you have been all over our Silver Screen podcast, and we did do that Picard review with Adrienne and DK. So, yeah, awesome to uh, hear you properly. So, <laughs> just to give everybody, if you happen to be a new uh, viewer or listener, a quick rundown. This podcast breaks down into sections. The episode review makes up the bulk of it, ideally. But before that, we start with a little bit of a getting to know you with the uh, the guests and things. We hit the hit or miss section, uh, which I'll explain when we reach it. And at the end, of course, we give our audience feedback and our scores, our uh, you know favorite characters' moments and lines and our scores out of five. What I call five Starfleet Deltas rather than five stars. <laughs> Um, if you're not familiar, go back and watch some of our old episodes. They're good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to leap straight into our first, excuse me, first section of the episode, which, as I said, is a little bit of a getting to know you. I think I've done it a little bit once with uh, with you, Jeff, when you were on. So I don't have as many questions for you. Uh, but Sandra, it's going to be a whole new uh, experience for you. So welcome to the section I call Healing Frequencies Open. <laughs> Healing frequencies open, sir. Um, as I say, Jeff, I, I can only vaguely remember, but I do recall I definitely did ask you your favorite kind of Star Trek series and how you got involved into the franchise and things like that last time you were on, yeah? You did, yeah. I mean, my favorite series is Deep Space Nine. It's it's genius. And uh, got into the series watching Star Trek with my mom. It was her thing. Uh, when So I started watching it in the late 70s, early 80s when I was, when I was very young. And it was just a thing uh, that I I literally literally never stopped doing, <laughs> and we're all the better for it. I think always oh, so. awesome, awesome. And uh, just out of curiosity, because I don't think I did ask you this, how did the uh, Starfleet Leadership Academy podcast come about? Oh, I thank you for that question. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. So I've I've worked in management and leadership for longer than I care to admit, and uh, and one of the things that I really <laughs> enjoy doing is helping people become better leaders and just better at the things that they have the potential to be. And so years ago, I decided I wanted to start a podcast. You know, I'm someone who has a microphone and wanted a platform and I have things to say, <laughs> but I didn't know what I wanted that to be about. And so when I first wanted to do a leadership podcast, I looked up what was out there and I saw like Tony Robbins has a podcast, you know, Harvey McKay's got a podcast. They're good. They're covered. They don't need me. <laughs> so I looked at Star Trek podcasts and same thing. There's great podcasts like hit or miss out there and other ones where I'm just like, yeah, they're good. They got Star Trek covered. We're, we're solid. And, um, one day I was in a meeting and anyone who's sat through meetings before has been in this one where you're like, 
uh, we already made all these decisions. Why are we talking about this still? I don't understand. <laughs> and I got so frustrated. And I said to one of my colleagues, I was like, I want meetings like Captain Kirk has meetings, right? Issue, discussion, decision, action. Boom, 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 boom. That's what I want. And that's when the light went off. And I'm like, oh, there's something to this. So I started watching Star Trek through the lens of leadership. And I realized like to an episode, this thing is just rife with incredible management, leadership, and generally good, good human lessons. So uh, that was the moment the Starfleet Leadership Academy was born. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm, I can't believe I haven't asked you that. That's a brilliant story. Excellent. Thanks. And uh, yeah, as I said, it, it's strange because watching this episode and probably it would be the case with any other, once you start looking at it through that lens, you're like, yeah, there's there's leadership roles all over, whether it be somebody that's in charge of an away team or somebody that gets put in charge of a ship like in these episodes or somebody that has to kind of take even just a moral stance of their own. So it's it's a fascinating subject and it makes for a great podcast if I do say so. Oh, <laughs> Not too, too a flat, but uh, Yeah, it's a great little angle to come at, I think, rather than just another review podcast um but yeah awesome that's cool uh and sandra uh coming to you now not to shine four or five cardassian lights in your face but i know that we haven't asked you the big questions that we normally ask during the intro section uh, so i kind of have to start with the you know what first got you into star trek and uh, can you remember the first episode it was that you saw or that grabbed you and uh, got you interested well first of all there are four lights and um <laughs> uh <laughs> I first started watching The Next Generation in 95. Um, and so it was, um, I, I, I thought I was watching it live as it aired, but I realized later it was actually, you know, reruns that were already starting at that time of it, but, but pretty close. I can't remember the first episode I, I saw of that, though. But I just remember, I mean, it was probably, you know, somewhere around this season, you know, season three, seven, season four, that I really uh, just started to pick up on the show and, and started to love the show. Uh, Guinan and Riker and Troy, the, the whole crew, <laughs> and, and just how at times it was familial and as at other times it was just um, really exploring uh, science fiction um, versus uh, things that we were seeing today, you know, just real social commentary and and really, really ethical, crossing ethical lines and and the the big philosophical questions. Basically, it just made me sit and think, and and I just really liked that. It 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 was when I was eighteen years old. So it was really bridging, uh, you know, me coming out of school and trying to decide the person I was going to be. And it was like a, actually a big part of that, just making me think mm. philosophically and kind of forming the person that I wanted to be. And uh, Picard himself was just like, you know, the paragon. And when I say what's my favorite series, it has actually always, you know, it just pops out of my mouth. It's the next generation because it's the first one I became very intimate with. But more and more i find myself you know when when we're talking about you know what's your favorite arcs and stories i do start seeing myself gravitate towards ds9 oh, but it's really yeah. hard to choose between uh ds9 next generation voyager and um enterprise like those are really just all my favorite for 
for what they fed off of one one you know each other in storylines and in ideas i just really like them all that's fair enough um, i can't believe i didn't realize that we have quite a similar experience with the you know next gen i've always said is my favorite of the series but it was also something i came to as a kind of a teenager in my formative years and i've always said that picard was kind of like a, a third parent to me you know teaching yeah. me right and wrong and uh, you know that was where i learned a lot of my moral lessons from watching next gen on the you know on what was sky tv back then at like five in the afternoon every day and it was reruns of course even then for me but uh i just was fascinated by it so yeah strange we have that in common <laughs> but uh so you've already asked the, the biggest question that i was going to come to which is what's your favorite series i'm going to just continue to believe it's going to be next gen because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i'm biased um but this is a potentially sort of a wider ranging question so apologies for putting you on the spot but uh if you had to pick three episodes or movies to show somebody that uh, maybe hasn't seen Star Trek that you think represents the best of what the franchise can do, what would you uh, what would you pick? Well, luckily I did anticipate this question, so I had some time to really think about it and and you know look at some episode lists and try to pick some out. And certainly, there's I really went with certain themes and then maybe picked up an, a specific episode that showed that theme. And um, so more than one episode would fit the bill in each occasion. But um, what I came up with, and it's, it's you know, all Next Generation episodes. Oh, um, <laughs> one of my favorites uh, is The Measure of a Man, um, because I think it captures a lot of, of the philosophy, a lot of the question of, you know, what, what does it mean to be human? And even if we're going to say data is not human, you know, what does it mean to be alive and in control of one's own destiny? And mm -hmm. I've just always thought about when thinking about alien life forms and space travel and uh, maybe silicone-based life forms versus carbon-based life forms. And, you know, how what would we, you know, at, at the very basic, what would we consider life to be all the way into the philosophical of, you know, is, you know, like the vegan philosophy, you know, is a cow, you know, food or is it some something that should um you know be revered and honored and given its own life you know and and its life protected and it just really you know which is uncomfortable because i do i do eat beef but i mean it's just really very thoughtful and something um that i think is important to all the Star Trek franchise, having those types of conversations, even the difficult ones or uncomfortable yeah. ones and, and just coming out with a philosophical, philosophical view. Um, so I, I thought that one was important. Another one I love uh, that I think really embodies Star Trek um, is uh, Peacemaker. Uh, I love the thought of them you know, we rely so much on the universal translator and all the work that that does in the background and to come across something where the universal translator actually doesn't work because the language is, you know, so different that it can't be translated. And in fact, oh, that it's oh. not they don't use language the same way that we do. Are you referring Are you... to the episode Darmok, by the way? Yeah, Darmok. Oh, I'm sorry. I. I, I don't know why I, I I can't read my own writing. Yes, Darmok. It looked like you, I wrote yeah. Peacemaker. <laughs> I, I was confused because I was like, I know every episode title and I can't remember one called that. So, <laughs> but yeah, I get what you meant as soon as you started talking about writing. it. 
It's another yeah. fantastic episode, though. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Go ahead. I sorry. love I love that idea of just um, you know, uh, not just being so human centric and um, you know centric to our own ideals of what life should look like, what language should act like. I, I just think that that expansive view is is central to um, Star Trek. Yeah, for and sure. then. The last one I chose, and it's kind of a little bit of the same theme of that last part I mentioned, is uh, Q Who, uh, because I personally love all Q-related episodes. But <laughs> the reason I liked this is because it um, really, you know, when I, when I was first watching it, and, and I thought they were exploring all of space. It's kind of like when you're a kid in school and you realize when they point and they say, this is where earth is in the Milky Way and you feel so small. And it's, it's kind of gives that same sense that even, you know, traveling hundreds of light years, they're still only in this very small part of the known universe. Mm. And, just seeing them flung so far out there um, to see that they're not the dominant species in the universe. It's kind of humbling to uh, humans. I, I just, I like that kind of putting humankind, present day humankind in its place. I kind yeah. of like that, that aspect. And um, I think that's also important to the Star Trek uh, franchise, but there's, so so much more because you also want to show somebody where they um where they're giving you like some real hard science fiction you know when they're talking about tachyons and <laughs> and warp fields and and subspace especially i just um you know these episodes do have a lot of that in it and that's really important to hook somebody into star trek as well but i really think it's more about the philosophical issues and the big questions and that those episodes i think are good to show that i think those are great choices especially um darmok i think is an episode that's becoming more and more prescient as time goes by and we start communicating via memes and things mm -hmm. so um i think I, I wish i remembered who i saw saying this that, that i could give them credit but somebody was like we're not that far away from seeing like leo dicaprio his glass raised or you know robert redford full beard smiling at you or not because right. these, yeah. these are just things that we use to communicate every day and yet if we you know go back in time by 20 or 30 years that would be baffling for humanity to understand it but we've just accepted it as this common language of the internet so it's uh yeah it's weird the meme. That, uh, yeah yeah the meme has become kind of the equivalent of the Temerian language and uh Hugh who I just love because it's the introduction of the Borg so of course that's going to hopefully hook people in and yeah. it's also I think it's the first episode I remember just truly being obsessed with because I was like most people I was just captivated by the Borg and you know, Q is a great character that I'd seen a couple of times, and so that was the first episode that I could just recite word for word at you. So, yeah, and then, as you say, Measure of a Man is just a fantastic quintessential Star Trek moral dilemma rights of the individual episode. So you can't go wrong with that. So uh, yeah, and weirdly enough, Measure of a Man is the only one of those three that we've actually got a review of on the episode, on the uh, podcast, I should say. So you can go and listen to me and Captain Janie discuss that episode if you want. All great episodes, fantastic. So um, the last question that I have, uh, and it's addressed to both of you because it's specific to the season 
that we're currently engaged in. Uh, and it is, and we'll go to you first, Jeff, because you've waited patiently. Uh, do you have any favorite Klingon stories specifically across the entire franchise that you'd want to shout out? That's a great question because there are so many of them. In fact, yeah. kind of leading into the this, it this really showed the the start of a lot of the Klingon stuff that we were going to see in the future. Yeah. My first thought, like my first initial reaction, is the Commander Cruz story in Star Trek Three, because yeah. I think that was the first time we really got like a formed Klingon culture outside of hey we're scary bad guys that do bad things <laughs> like all of a sudden like you know they had pets and uh you know and like they they had like uh we, we understood a little more about their honor code and things like that we got john larroquette you know getting getting uh you know discovery it was just i don't know it, to me it feels like that was the first like flag planted about what klingons are but when i think about it a little more i really think my favorite klingon story is a love story and it's the love story between Worf and Martok. Oh, okay. Wow. That's left field, but uh, okay, yeah. Well, I think it's just, it, it stretches out for such a long time, right? It really, really starts in a, you know, in an early mid deep space nine and goes to the literal final episode. And yeah. we even got the call in Picard season three, where, you know, he's still identifying Worf house of Martok and yeah. it, it it's just such a powerful story of someone who um, is is born into an identity, raised in a different identity, spending his whole life trying to align the two, and then finally finding that person who he falls in love with, and who also falls in love with him. And I and I think a thing I like to talk about a lot is how you know as in in Western society we say love and immediately we think about romantic love you know but there are so many types of love I, I I miss the the various Greek translations you know filioque and agape and all the different types of love that are out there definitely yeah and I think that this is just such a great love story parental um, and respectful love story that's so powerful crosses cultures and it really talks about in a big way what it means to be Klingon yeah. That's fair enough. It's strange you say that because I think it came up during our Picard review that I was saying that to me that there's quite a powerful love story between Jordy and Data all through the things, which isn't oh, to say yeah. that I think that that has to necessarily be queer coded or that they have to have you know romantic feelings, but it's quite clearly strong affection for each other that's yeah. there, and it yeah you know, it breaks your heart when uh, when Data in a good way when Data says you know no matter what else changes or your friendship will always be something I'm really grateful for. And you're like, oh, yeah, I, I get it. You know, <laughs> It's a thing I actually get really frustrated around is, uh, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with people um, shipping, right? The ship community yeah, and yeah, things yeah. like that. But it's like Janeway and Chakotay, you know, to kind of take this to the side a minute. They're like, oh, they need to, why can't they just be two people that have a respectful love for each other and just like, do great work. Why can't they be yeah. that? Why does it have to always turn romantic? And I think that's the perfect example. Jordy and Data, I mean, what a powerful, uh, O'Brien and Bashir, you know? Yeah, what, yeah. How powerful. Kim and uh, Kim in Paris as well on Voyager. Yes, I mean, it's, exactly. uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All these, what we would call platonic kind of relationships, but are, are equally as powerful in a lot of ways, I think. So, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's a cool idea. And uh, in a way, there is an episode, I think, that, um, Combines those two things, Wolf's kind of love of the family of Martok and then his actual romantic love, and that would be You Are Cordially Invited, the wedding episode. That's, that's the one, yep. Yeah, 
So I'm guessing you'd be a fan of that as well. Then. You know, it's funny because I usually I usually despise episodes like that. You know, we're gonna have a whole wedding episode, but it wasn't just a wedding episode. It was no, that. Was. You know, yeah. How do I, how do I as a as a sentient being that loves, how do I love appropriately within the various? Because what a what an intersection of cultures. You know that relationship <laughs> is and, ah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it was just super well done. And I think too, it's fun the the seeds that are planted here, the lengths to which Worf is willing to go to restore the name of the House of Moog, but mm. then to ultimately shed that for the House of Martok. Um, like that's that's a powerful love story in there. Awesome. Cool. That was a, a very deep and uh, fantastic answer. So thank you for that. And uh, Sandra, no pressure. You've got to top that. But I was going to ask you the same question. Do you have any <laughs> favorite Klingon stories? It's okay. Because, you know, basically, that's what I was going to say. I couldn't narrow it down to any specific episode or story. But it's always, for me, going to be Worf-centric. Because I love how the next generation started with this idea of, okay, yeah, we're going to have a Klingon on the crew. And how did he become in Starfleet? Oh, just his parents died. He was raised by humans. And then they took, you know, this, this quick backstory they threw together to justify him even being there because it was be cool and interesting and how that's grown from that backstory, how they had to, well, they didn't have to, but how they chose to add, you know, a deep, rich story to that and how Worf goes from, you know, being raised human, but still having Klingon instincts and pride and nothing to attach that to um, until he does start to become, more, you know, becomes important to him to become more Klingon and show his heritage and how he balances that with being in Starfleet, which actually does, you know, come up very much in this episode oh, and, and then just how it grows from there in DS9 and yeah, his relationship with Jadzia and um, how even she helped him become more Klingon and um, yeah, just that whole entire arc that spans, you know, several different shows and, and how yeah. deep it's become. I just, um, but I think, I think um, overall, um, yes, I do uh, love what what you're saying, and I agree wholeheartedly. Um, but overall, um, for me, it's the um, just the um, the meeting of those two obligations that he has, and 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 fighting his instincts sometimes to be um, always honorable. And, and trying to decide, is he going to be honorable for his Klingon heritage or honorable as his role in Starfleet when those conflict? It's just really fascinating and good. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, to throw a few episode names out then, and, and uh, forgive me, uh, just, just being so forward, but I'm, I'm thinking you'd probably say things like the way of the warrior comes up uh, with, you know, literally, does he accept being Starfleet and uh, being rejected by Klingons as they go to war and um, particularly the DS9 episode Change of Heart where it very much is duty versus responsibility towards your wife and what do you actually do uh, not so much a Klingon angle on that one but it is that that same kind of you know responsibility versus feelings 
um, yeah, I think uh, those were two I would probably shout out for Wolf. And then there's a countless ones in Next Generation, but probably the primary one we're going to be talking about shortly. So I don't want to get too far into that. But yeah, I think uh, Wolf is a character that gets a lot of flack from certain quarters, but it's a character that I, I definitely love. And uh, relating back to Jeff's point, I think if we'd had more time with them, I think Wolf and Rafi could have become another of those non-romantic sort of love relationships that played really well off each other. And uh, it's a shame that we might not get to see that. But I do hope if something like Star Trek Legacy goes ahead that they at least have Wolf guest starring and we can have that banter and that um, interplay again because I thought it was really good. Uh, that gets that out of the way, then the little introduction section. Um, what we're going to do now, then we're going to head into the section that gives the podcast its name, and that is the hit or miss section. What about my performance? I'm not a drama critic. Ah, I'm going to explain this for any new uh, viewers, but also for the two people here, because this is the first time either of you have done one of these, I believe. Um, so what it is, basically, the hit on this section, I will pick four or five things this week, because we've got a double-length episode to talk about. Uh, I will basically shout out the thing, put a little picture on screen, and ask if you think it's a hit or a miss. Uh, you basically tell me, then give your thoughts, a little bit of reasoning back and forth. Then we come to a kind of consensus between us uh, off the back of that, since there are three of us here to see what we would uh, declare overall and... Uh, yeah, then we hopefully move on to the next without any any major arguments. Not that that's ever really happened, but uh, yeah, awesome. So uh, I haven't told either of you guys in advance, have I? What you, what's going to be coming up? No, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first thing I have on the list for today, I should say by the way, I'm going to pepper in things related to the theme. Now that we're doing theme seasons, so there will be the odd Klingon related one. But the first thing on today's list isn't Klingon related, at least unless there's some secret canon I'm not aware of. Uh, it's a species, uh, and it is hit or miss the Gorn. And uh, Jeff, we'll come to you first and alternate it that way. Would you say the Gorn are a hit or a miss? Well, you know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna use an American baseball reference here because I need I think I I need to on this one. I'm gonna <laughs> call this one uh, two up and three down, or or two two down and three up. So it's just, it, we got two misses um mm. on this one it's we're not struck out on it yet because i think we're still developing this if it wasn't for strange new worlds uh popping in and kind of making them a theme in the first season um i'd call it a hit because the gorn mm. were just this you know specter that was out there and they were kind of scary and they showed up in enterprise in the mirror episodes and that was super cool and fine cool they're one of those things out there but now we're diving into them a little bit and i think between strange new worlds and their uh, portrayal of them along with uh what the 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 blip in lower decks that we saw of them with uh, rutherford mm. uh ending up in one of their weddings i feel like they need to figure out who the gorn are and they need to do it really quick or it's going to be a miss yeah i kind of i'll, I'll get into that a little bit because uh, i kind of agree with you on that one but sandra what about you what do you what do you think of the gorn hit on this so i have an opposite <laughs> view of that but also the same because um old gorn um i thought you know they it could be any other you know opposing species that they came across but with strange new worlds portrayal of gorn i'm forgiving the change because we didn't have enough um kind of um slithering alien animalistic species that were you know i i just i felt like that was missing from the franchise um something really dangerous but but not necessarily 
um, sentient as as in moral thinking, philosophizing, or or what have you, um, not as highly brain developed. Um, and and so I did like the the new Gorn, and and so it was um, not necessarily a miss for me, but just like an eh for me. And then now I'm really intrigued by the Gorn, and um, I mean, I guess they could have called them something else and just introduced a brand new species. But I do like that it's a a something that we have experienced before, and that it's not a brand new species. So I'm I'm forgiving. I'm forgiving this change. Okay, fair enough. And um, I'm I'm very much on the same page as, as Jeff. I think in that I, I I would have said hit before Strange New Worlds, and that's part of the reason I wanted to kind of discuss it. Is I've kind of made no secret of the fact that I don't love what Strange New Worlds has done to the Gorn because, to your point, Sandra, it really isn't the same species, and they could and should have just given them a different name. I don't see any reason why not, and not because of the reason that you know I'm not one of these canon snobs that's like. They weren't supposed to have first contact and therefore, you know, they shouldn't be naming them that and whatever else. To me, it was that the episode Arena is a fantastic episode and the central message of it is bigotry is stupid, even though something can be very different from you. You know, that they're not evil inherently. It's just that they have a different stance on things. And even though they look monstrous to your eyes, they're not. Whereas Strange New Worlds takes that and just makes it, nah, they're monsters, which kind of, to me, shits on the original idea a little bit. Um yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, I've, I've watched a couple of things on the, the season one set now and they kind of say, oh, we love Arena, but we wanted to have this thing that there are such things as monsters in outer space. They don't all have to be redeemable things that you can talk to. And I'm like, that's fair enough. But don't then use a species where that was their defining characteristic, you know, was that they weren't that different. And uh, and so I'm going to probably have to go miss overall because of what's kind of been done to them and the fact that in canon, that's where we are with them now, is that we kind of have to reconcile this Strange New Worlds portrayal, unless, as Jeff says, they kind of do something to correct that, which it doesn't seem like they're going to, because yeah. they they seem like they're committed to this idea of they're just Star Trek equivalent of the Xenomorph now. So, yeah, it's kind of sucky for me that uh, for all the praise Strange New Worlds gets, I think that was a massive misstep, and it's quite a huge one in terms of the, the ramifications for canon in the regard of you know things that actually matter the, the messages of canon as opposed to that doesn't look like a guy in a suit which i couldn't really care about you know but um, well i think too but, there's yeah. I, I have a fun even beyond canon i have a fun like cool you want to have just like an aggressive evil species cool that's fine don't have them develop warp drive and spacefaring technology like with the herogen who they created as this aggressive hunter species that goes out they at least gave like a a, a method all a reasoning as to why you know because they want to be better hunters and they want to do this yep. stuff so of course they're going to have science and technology but the way strange new worlds has built up the gorn you can talk can debate canon till you know all day long the, the reality is what we know of them so far they're not going to have a scientific community out there you know breaking the warp barrier and things like that yeah exactly and it is it's too different there's kind of you're gonna kind of have to need an explanation of maybe a, you know a subspecies as you said of like well these are the more feral ones that you're not the ones you're used to because even lower decks in that little gag you know they just seem more like the original series species you know that they're, they're, they're like us in every way apart from physical appearance and yeah the computer effects on the enterprise one were terrible but at least it didn't break away from this idea of, well, it was just another species and it was being used as a slave and didn't do anything wrong. It was simply marking its territory or defending itself. And uh, yeah, and for me, it's a miss unless Strange New Worlds does something to fix what they messed up, unfortunately. 
So, uh, yeah. So I don't know where we landed on that. I think we ultimately landed on hit just from the legacy and the fact that Sandra likes where they're going. So that's fair enough. The second thing on the list today is Klingon related. It's a character uh, and it is the character of Kalos, specifically the cloned Emperor Kalos that appears in the seventh season of Next Gen. And Sandra, we'll come to you first this time. Would you say Kalos the clone is a hit or a miss? Uh... I'm trying to remember, honestly, I cannot remember much about that. Perhaps when you start talking to, a bit more. to To refresh your memory, basically, the Klingons have this almost religious figure, Kaelas, the Unforgettable, that existed, I think, like a thousand years ago, who's meant to have done all this mythological thing, you know, forged a sword out of his tears or whatever else. And he's kind of basically the Klingon Christ figure. And then Next Gen in Season 7 randomly does this idea of, well, we've cloned him, so we now have a Kaelas, and we have to decide what his place is in the Klingon Empire because can he rule it or you know what what do we do do we have a religious aspect to him and so yeah it ultimately ends up that he was made emperor but that's just a meaningless title <laughs> because it they have to do be something if I don't remember it that well yeah and it sounds like something that's very kind of outside of of normal Klingon tradition and and thoughts and doesn't yeah, sound fair enough. very Klingon yeah yeah that's fair enough well as, as, as you say if you can't even really remember it it's probably gonna be a miss from you in that yeah. regard um but what about you then jeff what do you think of the Kalis clone totally a miss this was such a cool idea and concept and they could have done so much with it and what you ended up with instead of just this this legendary mythical warrior who really really you could call him the progenitor of all klingon culture you know he's the one who um, he's the Surak, right, of, of, of Klingons yeah. who set up the Klingons that we know today. But instead what we got was an old dude sitting in a dark throne room telling war stories that he couldn't quite remember. And, uh, you know, so I think, like, I don't know, it's too many neat ideas that weren't well executed. I did like the compromise at the end of the episode where we're going to keep Gowron as High Chancellor. We're going to bring Kaelas as this... Uh, in name only emperor to acknowledge what's there but uh god this could have been so great and they and and i think too what really makes it a massive miss for me is this was a one and done right like yeah. we're gonna bring Kalis back from the dead we're gonna have this vision right like wharf is having an existential crisis and he sees this and then whatever we're just gonna move on and uh, never bring this up again even when we go <laughs> hunting for his sword in another series eh, yeah we're bring this up or like even when Worf's, you know, killing Gowron to install his own leader, no one's like, you know, technically we have got an emperor. To, right, uh... yeah, there's dude over here. Hi, hi, religious <laughs> figure, one room over. Yeah, exactly. Or any any amount of times on DS9 where they talk about, oh, Klingons slew their gods and worship Kalos, and yeah, we're just not going to address that one. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't guessed for me, it's also a miss because I don't know if I would sort of... Um, Without wanting to sound kind of offensive to our own kind of religions and things, I prefer the idea of it as like potentially a myth, because it's so, as soon as you make this solid, you you basically you have no need of faith anymore, if you know what I mean. So by you know giving this this heroic figure to Klingons and being like this is what he is, it kind of it dulls that that legend and everything that they've kind of come become because of that. And it really does just make him into just another person. Yeah. And like you said, they could have done a they could have done something interesting with that. They could have done a you know a science versus religion 
exploration on an episode and talk about that and discuss the things he's meant to have done that were impossible and whether or not they happened. But but like now said, it's kind of... <laughs> well, no, but I mean that's that's the thing. It's it, it, it's a weird thing to have decided to do that with the Klingons specifically yeah. because of all of them. It's kind of like well. What, what are we doing? And then, as, as Jeff said, they didn't really address any of this. It was just, oh, he's just a great warrior that lived many moons ago, which could have been anybody. I mean, that could have been... I mean, it was basically Kang, Koloth, and Kor when they came in DS9, and it was like, you had yeah. great battles against Kirk. I mean, we'd already done this uh, later on, and it done it arguably better than having to have this mythical figurehead. And as you said, the fact... I, I didn't love the compromise, because it was very much like, well, we can't kill him off, because that's the obvious thing, but we also can't have him now ruling the Klingon Empire because that's ridiculous. So, as you said, he was just basically, he has a meaningless title and we'll never talk about you again. So, yeah, it was kind of a miss for me. There, there was potential there to explore something and instead they just seemed to be irrelevant. It was like they wanted to do Klingon relics without any of the nuance, basically. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> not for me. So I think we've kind of come down on the side of that being a miss. Yeah. Unfortunately. Which isn't to say Kielos as a general idea is a miss, by the way. I was specifically talking about the clone because I think that's more interesting than how do you feel about the Klingon's mythical figure? But anyway, <laughs> uh, moving on then, the next thing on my list for this week is going to be, let's see, it's a, um, it's not a ship, but it's related to that thing. And it is kind of Klingon related. And it is Deep Space Station K7. Uh, and Jeff, I believe we're on you. <laughs> Would you call Deep Space Station K7 a hit or a miss? A hit. I love K7. It's so <laughs> like, and I love it because, uh, like, we didn't know. You know, this was from Trouble, the Trouble with Triples, and we didn't, right. we didn't know, you know, about Deep Space Stations and and things like that. There was this was this added so much. Um, to the world, you know, the world building there. Like, here's this uh, station with interspecies trading going on. And mm -hmm. even though, uh, you know, they hadn't really dove into the whole post-scarcity, uh, non-economy, you know, economy of the Federation, mm -hmm. this was a thing that showed, like, hey, there's still, like, you know, stuff going on or whatever. But what makes this a total hit for me is the fact we revisited it in one of the greatest episodes of Star Trek ever, Trials and Tribulations. <laughs> so much fun. It pays so much honor to to the original series and the legacy of Star Trek. And uh, no, I, I think K7 was just a really cool moment and place in Star Trek that added so much to the world. And uh, and it was a lot. And besides, that's where that's where we learned that when you have questions about the various different Klingons and how they look, <laughs> we just don't talk about that. <laughs> we don't discuss it with outsiders. We ask Scott Bakula later. Yeah, yeah, he'll, he'll <laughs> take care of everything for us. Fill in those blanks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I already have I it all figured out in my head. I'm I'm good with that. I had to reconcile in order to continue to watch Discovery. I had to fix it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. But what did you make of uh, Deep Space K7? Then? <laughs> I, I don't remember a whole lot about it, but just uh, just based and remembering it, it does come up in um, almost all the series. So I do agree it's a miss just in, I mean, a hit, excuse me, just in as much as it does, you know, expand the universe and kind of show a little bit of that, um, you know, what, what life is like outside of the ships, because we've had until that point, until DS9, we were always confined to ships. And so it, it was an interesting look at how other people live in the universe who aren't planet side necessarily. 
Awesome. Yeah, I, I did get a bit of a kick out of hearing it name-checked, even though we didn't visit it in uh, Strange New Worlds, when they mentioned Deep Space Station K7, I was like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> but yeah. Um, on, a, on a completely separate note to what you guys were saying, I fully agree with everything you're saying, but I also just really love the design, because it's that kind of retro-futuristic 60s thing that the original series did totally. really well. Totally. <laughs> and there's something, it, it's not that it's unbelievable as being futuristic, but it's that cool, uh, you know, pop art-type futurism that that I just am a sucker for, you know, that's the reason that I love Robbie the robot and all that kind of stuff that some people would think is hokey. So I think it's, it's such a unique design. Like we've not seen a Starbase or a station, anything like it yet. It just really works. You can see that there are like living domes and places where you can have habitat rings and such. We know there are like grain silos and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's, it's such a rarity for the original series to have done something because it took them until the third season to even give the Klingons a ship. But yeah, they've, you know, they've built this entire space station for that one episode. And so I think I, as a child, I always appreciated that because, like you said, it just helps capture your imagination when you're like, whoa, wait a minute. There are actual like stations and things and they're not just on planets. They're like in space and everything. And as you get inside of it and it's like there are bars and traders and people sharing drinks and everything. This is wild. So, yeah, it's a hit for me as well. So, yeah. One last one then for this uh, for this particular episode of the podcast. Uh, this isn't Klingon related, but I like to always throw in an episode. Uh, and just randomly, it's an episode of Lower Decks, uh, which I happen to have watched recently, actually. So, um, Jeff, coming to you first, hit or miss the Lower Decks episode, Kayshawn, His Eyes Open, which seems even more relevant now. <laughs> yeah. It really does. This is a hit. Almost Almost every single Lower Decks episode is a hit to me. I I find the series to be very intelligently and carefully created um, in a really fun way. And what I just loved about this, two things I loved about this episode was, I mean, we got Keishon, we got a Tamarian, and in the, the like, there's a fault. Like there was clearly growth between the Federation and the Tamarians, and like a lot of stuff happened between Darmok and now. And I just think it's cool to have that. Uh, that touch point and that callback. But I mean, I mean, can, can we just talk about the, I don't know, 600,047 different Easter eggs and reference <laughs> that are buried in this thing that are so much yeah. fun. Yeah. It's great. This is a total hit. Awesome. Cool. And um, what about you, Sandra? Have you seen the episode? First of all, do you remember it? And uh, what would you think? Yes, I saw the episode. I remember it a little bit. Um, but yeah, it was a hit for me too. Um, just because I did always like that. Um, episode with uh, Darmok and, and bringing that up um, again, seeing it again, because uh, because it was that episode was a one and done, never to be seen again. And I, I really liked liked that idea and just to see it brought up again and expand on further and just the funny things they did with it. Uh, it was a really a hit for me. Awesome, awesome. Um, this this is a one I, I can kind of say a unique perspective on, which I wouldn't have had. Um, this isn't why I included it. It was already on the list just as a random thing, but it's one where my opinion completely changed when I rewatched it because I was watching. I'm just watching through the Blu-rays at the moment, and when I first saw it on, like when it aired, I remember disliking it because it just seemed like it was all Easter eggs. To your point, Jeff, and I was kind of, I was a bit jaded at that point, and I was very much rolling my eyes on like, yeah, yeah, it's the collectors from the most toys and the aliens from Darmok and there's Spock from the animated series, the giant one. And yes, I recognize all those things, but you have to have a plot in between all these Easter eggs and you haven't got one. And then rewatching it, I was like, actually the Easter eggs were distracting me from the fact that there is a really good plot here. 
in that it's dealing with Mariner coping with Boimler not being there and this kind of uh, this Jet Manhaver character kind of worming his way in and trying to to take over and her not liking it because as much as she protests to the, you know to, to one of my many points about leadership as much as she protests about not wanting to be in charge and being an ensign she kind of can't handle not being in charge of that core group so even within her rank she wants to be the one in charge and that that was quite fascinating when you look at it at that angle and like this is a power struggle between the lowest ranking people to see who can and then even even still they kind of have to defer to the nerds at the end because they can't find you a solution and it's the geeky ones that they're like as soon as you actually you know point over to people that know what they're talking about and be like you guys solution please <laughs> then all of a sudden they realize that good leaders would delegate that's what you do you know so um yeah i thought that was a fascinating story and then with that in mind i was able to appreciate the easter egg parts a lot more because i realized they were kind of in service of, of a cool story and that that wasn't all there was to the episode so i'm kind of glad i did rewatch it with that in mind and uh yeah Fair enough. <laughs> I think it's so but much yeah. of the brilliance of lower decks. Like there's the, the the surface layer when you first watch almost all the time is like, oh my God. Just I mean, what are we in, in seventh grade here? This is just this all these just dumb jokes. It moves at the the speed of light. It's so fast. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Blah, blah, blah. A lot of fan service. But then like when you actually watch and dive in, like there is so much depth they cram into mm -hmm. these like 24 minute long ex episodes. It's it's mind blowing. Like the work really that goes is. into crafting these episodes is is so incredible. Definitely. And I like like most of the show anyway, but I will say it benefits so much from rewatching now that I'm going through the Blu-ray sets and uh, like I said, when you can kind of appreciate it a bit more and see things that were just whizzing you by as you were appreciating kind of the more basic humor or the little kind of fan references. And yeah, it tells really good stories and good Star Trek stories, you exactly. know? Exactly. Good um, Star Trek stories. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, that's kind of, that, that, that was the crux of this episode was that story about leadership and, you know, can, can Mariner actually let go enough to delegate to people that are more skilled than she is in one area? Or does she just have to feel like she's in charge of bossing everyone around? And, you know, that that's a deep exploration for a comedy series. And, yeah, sure, you get jokes in with it. You know, this is the same episode where one of the people gets turned into a puppet for no apparent reason. But, you know, it's it's funny as well. You know, that's it, it, I always say it reminds me a lot of Futurama in that on the surface, that's kind of a basic, oh, yeah, you're juvenile jokey. And then you look at it and you realize, no, it's actually got some really pretty powerful and decent stories that reflect our times in between all the jokes if you pay attention so yeah yeah awesome ah so that's my uh proletarizing <laughs> for lower decks over and done with ah we were gonna um that will conclude the hit or miss section and we are gonna move on uh quite quickly because i don't want to take you guys up for too long to the uh the episode in question that we're reviewing this week and as I mentioned, that is going to be Redemption Parts 1 and 2, which is the concluding episode of Next Gen Season 4 and the first episode of Season 5. So we, uh, without any further ado, we will begin our analysis of that episode. <laughs> Excuse me. Before I jump in, uh, I do have a little, well, quite a lot, actually, of behind-the-scenes information from the episode. So bear with me. I'm just going to read this out. If there's anything that you uh, particularly want to comment on, feel free to jump in, or if there's anything you, you kind of knew or you can add to, uh, do so. Um, but yeah, so uh, just to, to give you some backstory then, according to Michael Pillar, the Redemption storyline was initially conceived as the cliffhanger for the third season, but it was delayed by a year to make way for the best of both worlds. 
Uh, when considering the two parts of the story, Pillar remarked, I've come to think of part one as Shakespearean-style royal drama. I, Claudius, type intrigue at the highest levels. Okay. Uh, Gene Roddenberry initially objected to the premise. Ronald D. Moore recalled it was the first time we ever did a war story, even though it was with the Klingons. Gene wasn't a big fan of going in that direction, nor of placing such a big emphasis on Worf. Gene did not feel that Worf was a primary character. The show was about Picard. We had to fight a bit to get there. I think, uh, yeah, the right thing happened in the end. Thank goodness, um, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, this episode, of course, introduces the Duras sisters, Lursa, played by Barbara March, and Bator, Gwyneth Walsh. Ronald D. Moore recalled that the sisters were Michael Pillar's idea. They appeared several times in the show's run, also appearing in the DS9 episode Past Prologue, and they were, of course, ultimately responsible for the destruction of the Enterprise D in Star Trek Generations. Uh, the character of Sela is the daughter of Tasha Yar from the alternate current timeline, created in the episode Yesterday's Enterprise. Sela is played by Denise Crosby, who played Yar. Uh, Sela first appeared in the mind's eye, but she wasn't identified, and only her voice was heard. Her face was hidden in that episode. Uh, the character would later return in Unification Parts 1 and 2. <clears throat> Deanna Troy, Crusher, and Geordie LaForge appear only in Worf's farewell scene in Part 1, and none have lines. So that was worth turning up to work for, for those three actors. Um, I love this. The revealing costumes for the Duras sisters were designed by Robert Blackman and quickly dubbed Klingon Cleavage with a K among fans, <laughs> which I just love. That's classy and, with a K. Is <laughs> exactly right. And uh, I'm, I'm quoting from actual memory alpha here when they say, according to the production staff, neither actress used chest padding. Good good to know. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll sleep better at night now, knowing that. That's good. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. <laughs> Footage of the Klingon bird of prey firing torpedoes and flying towards the view screen is, of course, reused from Star Trek for the voyage home. Uh, the conclusion to the cliffhanger created by Redemption Part 1 was only written after the staff returned from hiatus. Uh, Ronald D. Murray called, I had more fun writing Part 2 than 1. We knew there were a lot of stories to tell, but I didn't want to lose any of those threads, and the data thing was the most fun of all of them. I wish there were a couple more minutes because you watch it and it blazes a Long, but it was a little constrictive. The parallels to the coup in the Soviet Union was very ironic. It was something that resonated around my mind. Part two had a little more life than part one. Okay. Uh, talking about the character of Sela then, according to Denise Crosby, Sela sort of came about from me sitting around in my house one day thinking about how much fun it was to go back and do yesterday's Enterprise. And it was so much fun that I thought, what else can I do? I thought it was pretty well established that Yar and Lieutenant Castillo had something going on in yesterday's Enterprise. So perhaps they had a child or Yar was pregnant when she went back into the past to fight her final battle. And I sort of thought it out and it seemed to really make sense and there were no flaws. Additionally, Crosby stated, my original intention was that Lieutenant Yar would have a daughter that was raised by Romulans and grew up to try to actually be a Romulan. So I brought this up and the producers really liked the idea and they toyed with it for a while. A few months went by and I got a call and they said, we like your idea, but we can't make sense of that Lieutenant Yar got pregnant by Castillo. Not quite sure why that was, but <laughs> we'll have it so that Yar was captured. They didn't all die in the battle. The ship was captured and she was taken by a Romulan general. Yeah, not quite sure why why they had an issue with Castillo being the father, but okay. And, uh, it, sounds um, so, it sounds so much worse, right? Like, hey, yeah, right. Had a romantic relationship with someone, or horrible things could have gone down. Yeah, exactly. Like, we can't make sense that she got pregnant by this man she was clearly in love with. Well, <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, anyway, Moore noted some problems in incorporating the sealer plot into the show. He said it was tough to write, and I knew it would be confusing, and that, in essence, is the difficulty with doing continuity on the show. It's fun, and it gives the sense of being in a real place, but you have to explain it to people who haven't seen all those other episodes. It was not an easy explanation. That all came from Denise. She came up with the concept, which I rolled my eyes at the first time I heard, but as we started to get into story on Redemption Part 2, I needed 
needed some sort of Romulan thing to actually happen this time, since we kept seeing they're doing this stuff. It seemed natural, it fit, and so we did it. Ha! <sighs> so, that's all of the behind the scenes I have on these episodes. So, before we get into a little breakdown by section of the episode, do you have any thoughts about the behind the scenes, or just general thoughts on the episode that are spoiler-free, either of, uh, of you guests today? I just did not know that um, Crosby had that much pull with the producer still. I, I'm surprised to hear that. I mean, I know that she had come back and I thought it was more just to show fans there was no, you know, bad blood between them, you know, given her exit on the, on, on the earlier season. But um, so I'm surprised to hear that, that she had as big of a hand in her coming back each time as she did. That was new to well, me. Well, I don't think it was her idea for yesterday's Enterprise. That was like a fan script that they kind of pulled out and then she was willing to come back when she was offered it. But certainly, yeah, the Sela plot was basically her idea. So, yeah, odd to think of that, especially and since she's not first, really given a credit. <laughs> but, what's funny is as soon as she does come out of the darkness rewatching it, I'm sure the first time I watched it that I was like, oh, yay, because Yar was one of my favorites and I was so upset when, when she left um, and how she left. But um, I think seeing it the second time I did the same thing I rolled my eyes I was like oh this is so 80s like drama and I was actually like glad my daughter wasn't watching you know at that time because I always try to convince her she needs to watch Star Trek um, but um, then when I was you know listening to her explanation and stuff and then how it you know tied back to Enterprise C and how Guinan because she mm -hmm. remembers all that you know already knew about this and was trying to think of a well, I think, you know, Picard, you sent her there, actually. Yeah, um, I think this is I, basically all your fault, dude. <laughs> and I really liked it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Awesome. Cool. Uh, and uh, what about you, Jeff? Any thoughts before we break uh, break the episode down? Yeah, I'm on the opposite side. I dislike everything about Sela. Um, oh, okay. Ouch. Yeah, I... I uh, <laughs> I feel like her showing up, uh, Yar showing up on yesterday's Enterprise was great. I, such a masterpiece of an episode, right? So good. But I feel like this wasn't even like fan pandering. This was just pandering to one actor. Um, in the whole Sela arc, you could take her out and plop any other Romulan in there, right? Like, let's uh, let's get Andreas Katsulis, you know, his mm. uh, his guy who's just a powerhouse. Let's put him in there, you know, somebody else. She he was doing Babylon 5 at the time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah, that turned out very well for him also, <laughs> which is, he is so good as, as Jakar. But um, but I just think, yeah, Sila didn't add anything to the story. You could plop in any other Romulan. I, I didn't like her. I'm not a fan of Denise Crosby's, and I ultimately think that, uh, especially the second episode, I think she really detracted from the overall quality. I agree. It was a challenge to get her stuff into the episode, and I think it showed. Okay, fair enough. Um, I kind of see where you're coming from. I will say I, I do really like Denise Cosby as, a, as an actor and a person, so so that probably, you know, biases me a little. But I, I see what you're saying, but I think they kind of, they stuck the landing when it came to the appearance in the episode, because I think for me, probably the strongest scenes in both of these parts are the scenes with Sela and Picard yeah. in the ready room, like discussing everything. So for me, it kind of makes that worthwhile, along with the fact that, I remember when I first watched this, just loving the fact that there was some sense of continuity, that there was a sense of being rewarded for actually watching the show, because it's been said a lot that, you know, Star Trek in the old days was episodic. And I mean, we touched on it a little bit with the whole Kalos clone thing. It was very much, we can deal with this, but you've got 45 minutes. And at the end of it, the status quo has to go to exactly what it was. And we're not dealing with anything. And 
I think these episodes, there's an awful lot of stuff that's continuing on from things that have gone before. Yeah. And that's one that perhaps makes a little bit less sense, the Yesterday's Enterprise link. But like I said, I was just so thrilled because I was like, I understand everything about this. <laughs> it was, it was a definitely cool. Like, it was a cool idea to link back to Yesterday's Enterprise, the concept. Yeah. I just, But I think you know, I, my other overall impression is is specific on the the second episode in this i i think like to your background information it definitely has a lot more going on it's a lot you know oh, yeah. but i think it has too much going on I, I, yeah. I describe it as 20 kilos of fat in a 10 kilo bag like yeah. it's just there there are like three different things going on that should have been their own episodes and uh, i agree and yeah. i think it's um to me i think watching it as i did as kind of like one long thing even though it was you know it was two different discs or whatever but watching it like that i think it really emphasizes that part one doesn't have enough going on and part two has too much going on yeah. so it's kind of poorly paced in that way like they should have really spread it out better so that because part one it just seems like you're only dealing with like the wharf thing and that's powerful don't get me wrong it's brilliant and it's important and you need that but that's all they're doing in not 45 minutes. And so you're like, well, a B plot would have been nice, you know, right. <laughs> let alone a C or a D plot, which is what you start getting into in part two. But yeah, um, I see what you're saying with regards to that. Definitely part two was a weird place to shove all that because it seems like they could have maybe even done that in part one, but they wanted, they were probably had in mind that big cliffhanger to end part one with like, uh, oh, let's have her say humans will always turn up when you don't expect and then step out of the shadows and she looks like Yar and that will surprise everyone. And, Say like, okay, but you your cliffhanger has to have a point other than just being like, "Wow, okay." And oh, that was the exact same cliffhanger they did at the end of Unification Part One, like almost beat for beat, just out of the darkness. Spock comes out and says a line. Well, they that was practiced Spock, it first. Though. I know it's exactly it's Spock, but it's just like when I watch this again, it just hit me how I'm like, oh, it's the exact same scene. Yeah, I will. Say, I think the writing, the way they wrote it in Unification, made a lot more sense because it's it's kind of nonsensical. For Sela to say, "Ah, oh, humans turn up when you least expect it," and it's kind of a meta <laughs> thing for the audience because it doesn't. Reach, she's not human; like it doesn't make a lot of sense. But yeah. I do love the way that the writing pays off that thing in Unification. Not that we're talking about that because it's the way that Picard says, "I'm looking for Ambassador Spock," and then Nimoy just steps out and goes, "Indeed, you found him, Captain Picard," <laughs> which is one of those like, "Yeah, exactly, it's Spock! Oh my God, it's Spock!" <laughs> You found him, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> I think the, cliff, the cliffhanger was one of those ones they probably they heard about it at like two in the morning during a pitch session, and somebody was like, "Brilliant! That's gonna shock everybody. That'll that'll do." <laughs> but yeah, totally uh, awesome. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the way that we do the reviews now, but basically, I break it down into sections rather than dealing with it um, chronologically with the episode because it gets a bit boring if you just do a recap. So I basically break it down into things like acting, writing, and plot, direction, VFX, and sound. Uh, and you know, just generally uh, other, and then we talk about our favorite character, moment, line, audience response, and then give our conclusions. First of all, the, the first thing to deal with, I think, just to, to normally I would go with the acting, but I'm thinking we've kind of already started talking about the writing and the plot, so there's an awful lot here to chew on. So let's jump in straight with that, first of all, and just say, do you guys have any thoughts that immediately spring to mind about the plot of the episode that you wanted to talk about? <laughs> I know some people had said that they felt it really should have been um, TNG's first feature film, which I'm actually mm. surprised they didn't go with Best of Both Worlds as far as what should have been their first feature film. But I think that would have helped um, some of the stuff that they were trying to cram in there. I really didn't feel like they didn't give anything enough time, though. Um, but 
um, overall the writing and just how it's really starting to give the Klingons a story where people will want to hear or, or Worf in particular, you know, more about um, just more insight into their culture. I think that was really, really, really important. It didn't have to be a season ender slash season opener, but I'm so pleased that they won out um, in this request over Roddenberry's objections to making Worf a central character. And I'm just so glad they do, did it. And then looking back, it is actually pretty surprising that they did make something so Klingon-centric um, and, and, and as opposed to Worf-centric. I mean, uh, yeah. Picard-centric, yeah. Yeah, although Picard still gets a lot to do. Don't get me wrong in these episodes. He's still a very important part of it. But uh, to the detriment, I think, of any of the other characters, like I said, the fact that Crusher, Geordie, and Troy turn up just to say goodbye to Worf without even a line in part one and then... In part two, they don't really get much to do. Even Riker and the Forger just like go over there to that ambassador class ship and call us on the view screen briefly later on, and that'll do. That's all we want you for. I so, did see yeah. Troy cross in the background. Um, yeah, no, I was, <laughs> and I was just like, I forgot about Troy. <laughs> just forgot about her completely. Yeah. And then how weird was it when it was like the transporter chief is now your tactical officer? <laughs> like they've got nobody more qualified than O'Brien on the ship, really. But. <laughs> Well, Ryan was the tactical officer on the was it the Rutledge? I think. Oh, yeah, on the uh, the Phoenix as well under Maxwell. Yeah, you've got a point. Uh, yeah. Actually, yeah, fair play. <laughs> okay, but, and they, but actually I think... did, they actually did use Troy in trying to see if um, yes, the Sela thing. If she was yeah, if she was being genuine or not, and she's like, well, you know, I really can't tell you anything other than she thinks she's Tasha Yar's daughter. Yeah. They do fall back on that a lot when they realize that Troy is basically a human lie detector or a bit as a lie detector. So there's yeah. an awful lot of, well, they believe it's true. I can't tell you if that means it is. But yeah. And as you said, Crusher's only role is to turn up and go, look, I've checked the medical records and Yar was never pregnant. So yeah, that was about her extent of her role in the episode. But uh, Cool. Uh, what about you, uh, Jeff? Any last kind of thoughts from you? about? Yeah, no, I, I think it was a great story, you know, and I think that, um, I think that, Nostalgia glasses are strong. You know what I mean? We look back and we remember things through a certain lens. And I think one of the things that Next Generation catches a bad rap for is having some episodes that are just a lot of talking, you know, and it's like to, to you know, in your uh, kind of background information piece, you know, high Shakespearean drama kind of stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. But the flip side to that is, God, they do it well. They do it yeah. so well. And this was, I think it was great. We got insights into the Klingon culture and how things work and what honor looks like and, you know, her heredity stuff. I thought it was fascinating. They made a big deal about how women can't sit on the council, even though I'm pretty sure Gowron offered um, Kaylear a, a, a spot on the council. Well, not, not only that, Azit Bua serves as the chancellor after Gorkon is killed in Star Trek 6. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, you know, I mean, may, maybe that's like Gowron's first initiative. He's like, <laughs> as of now, women no longer or whatever. But. Or maybe they don't consider it to be serving on the council if you're actually the one in charge. Like, you're not allowed to serve, but you could rule us all. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us what to do all day long. That's cool. Yeah, exactly, yeah. No, it's good. Uh, and, I th and I think what shows this the, these two episodes, this, this two-parter was so powerful, is the ramifications are felt through to the end of Deep Space Nine. 
you know, yeah. there are direct callbacks to things that happen in this episode. We get Tural again in the future. The Duras stuff really takes off from this point. Having Lursa yeah. and Bator in, introduced, oh my God. Just, I mean, not only are they, are they incredible characters that like define so much of, of whatever, but I mean, they came out fully formed swinging yeah. you know just they I, I feel like in the writing they they knew what they wanted my last thought on the the writing and the plot and the stuff on this to your to your point mike is like this was one of the first times that they tied things together like you said they rewarded mm -hmm. you for having watched the show you know all yeah. the way to picard just walking in and telling where i'm not here as your captain i'm here as your chadich you know yes. and it's like what what is that they don't they don't take the time to explain no, they're just like yeah if you if you know you know, and cool, you know, and yeah, the other they they even they even bring up Alexander. Yeah, know, I know, which one. is rare. Very yeah. briefly, very briefly. Which is about yeah, the right amount of time to bring up Alexander. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think I think this was just a, a really well written uh, series of episodes that you know again the, the flaw of trying to do too much in the second, but still uh, on on balance, just really fun, entertaining, and challenging. You know, some really challenging ethical. Um, quandaries that a lot of people are put into really well done. Yeah, cool. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to go through a few things that I have as notes. The first one is just to, again, piggyback off the point you've already made, which is I love that it's basically, it is the conclusion of these ongoing storylines because I do get tired of people a lot of the time when they're like, oh, you may not like the new stuff, but Trek has to change because in the old days, everything was episodic and it was nothing changed and nothing had an ongoing plot. And now we have to do that. And it's like, look at an episode like this where, to fully understand it, you'd have to have watched Sins of the Father, A Matter of Honor, Reunion, before you even, and yesterday's Enterprise, before you even get to this episode, and then tell me that it doesn't, you know, have an ongoing thread that you, you're talking three seasons worth of build-up of various, not every episode, but it certainly does the legwork for you. And, you know, it's hard to say, would it, would it be understandable without that backstory? Because I, I don't know anybody that would watch this on its own, but... It certainly does, as you say, reward you for feeling like you've followed that story and you know what's going on. You know, as you said, even even when Wolf's like, "Oh, I accepted discommendation and, and dishonor for my father because it was actually Duras," we we don't see that in this episode. That was two seasons ago or whatever, you know. But but they just expect that, like, it, if you watched it, good. If you didn't, that's your quick catch up and let's move on. You know. Um, so yeah, I really appreciated that it was an ongoing thing. And as you said, it's it stays an ongoing thing because you could argue that this leads straight into many other things, but not least Star Trek Generations, which is going to mean nothing to you if you don't know who the Duras sisters are and what that history is. So yeah, the fact that it ultimately, you know, it, it's the death of a ship that we all came to love, these blooming sisters, but yeah, fair enough. Um, I did want to ask you a question on, from a leadership perspective then, uh, Jeff, which came up early in the episode, which is Gowron is actually, uh, you know, wanting to be the leader of the whole planet, the actual ruler, but says to Worf that he won't go against the council to restore his family's honor, which seems like an odd thing for somebody who wants to have that level of power. And I wasn't sure how you would look at it as like, is that good leadership on his part to keep everyone in check? Or is that just cowardly leadership on his part? It's a it's a really tough thing to ever call Gowron a strong leader. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that guy that guy oozes ego uh, everywhere. But but I think him saying he didn't want to defy the council uh, speaks a lot. To, not not so much to his his leadership capabilities, but to his political awareness. And yeah. and I and I think that's a key thing. Um, when we talk about leaders, so often we focus on our elected officials. 
and I'm very specifically using the word officials instead of leaders, because in my uh, opinion, most people that we've elected to office are uh, terrible leaders and often <laughs> yeah. um, objectively not great human beings on on balance, you know, according mm -hmm. to my um, judging high ivory tower judging chair where I can judge people from from Twitter. <laughs> but <laughs> But I think like there there is that balance of how do how do I provide leadership? Like the right leadership thing to do here, I don't know. I mean, I could sit here and say it's to restore Worf's family's name, but that's because I'm a fan of Worf. There's a lot to 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 take in there. I think to boil it down and take the politics out of it, that's the good leadership thing to do. Acknowledge the 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 rules of the game, right? What are our policies? Yeah. What's our organizational decision-making look like? And I'm going to advocate for a thing, but I'm also going to understand what I can and can't bring forward. Um, yeah. So it was a politically savvy moment for him, but I think it was a, it was uh, a positive leadership point for him as well. I also, the, the thing that kind of, it sticks in my craw a little bit in the regard that obviously with the benefit of hindsight, you know, anything can be possible to view that by that lens, but it's ultimately pointless that he doesn't do that because the whole point in not doing it is I won't divide the council because so many of them will be loyal to Duras. Then that happens anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and instead you have to go through Wolf doing the whole, like, I'll bring him some squadrons and the price will be our family's honor. And it's like, it just seems like such an unnecessary extra step for what ultimately ends up happening regardless. And if Gowron had just had the foresight to see that, he could have had Wolf, you know, on side a lot sooner and maybe built up his defenses better and been more prepared for the inevitable civil war that was going to happen. <laughs> so it feels to me like he was very... Like I said it's it's if he was here, he would probably chop off my head for seeing it. But it was a very cowardly move for a Klingon to be like, uh, no, no, we must keep everyone sweet for as long as we can. When it's just like, no, dude, prepare because your yeah. enemies are coming for you. But I think the um, flip side of that is, you know, I, I I don't know the breakdown, but like if there's ten people on the council and he knows that five are going to Duras as it is, and then he's like, well, if I restored the House of Moog, three more are going over. Mm. Well, I can't do that, so. Yeah, um, I see. So, I, but yeah, I think hindsight is is powerful, but also I think there's just a lot of information that we don't know. Yeah, and I will say that um, both Worf and Gowron in different ways then start to try to manipulate the situation because Worf, as I said, has decided no Kern, we can't have you know restore honor by acting dishonorably. So we will serve Gowron against your objections, and we'll take as many people as we can and pledge support for him, but only because then the price of that support will be the restoration of our family honor. And then Galron is kind of like, well, your four squadrons aren't enough, so yeah, you can get us Federation help. You know? <laughs> He's like, yeah. yeah, this is ridiculous, dude. Come on. What, seriously? Yeah. This is what you're bringing up? Yeah, but only because like, in that way, you can kind of see his tactical chess mind working of like, I appreciate it, Wolf, but you could always get the Federation to come and help because right. wink, wink, you're in a privileged position here, you know? Uh, so even if it was enough, I think Gowron would have made out it wasn't because he sees the bigger fish of like, ooh, let's get the Federation on side. But naturally that doesn't work because, you know, Picard's having none of that interfering with an internal matter situation. Um, but yeah, and I did love that scene when Picard talks to Worf about how they're both walking the same political tightrope of, you know, being Starfleet officers, but not being able to interfere, yet both having their own roles. Like Picard has to fulfill the Arbiter role and Worf obviously has to be a Klingon because he is. 
So it was interesting seeing that uh, played out on those two actors. And in that scene, I thought it was really good. That was a brilliant um, scene, the conflict of interest piece. And, I, and especially how bluntly Picard put it, where he's just like, my duties as a Starfleet officer, as who I am as Jean-Luc Picard, as captain of a starship, are in direct opposition to my role as arbiter of this. And I... And I, this is how I have to roll, whether I want to yeah. or not. This is what I have to do. But I think Worf brought up a very good point. And I was actually surprised that John Luke didn't see it that way when he was saying, you know, this is actually a Federation matter because of the Romulans involvement in it. And which mm -hmm. did eventually become the reason Picard did uh, uh, justify involving himself. But it was brought up at that point. And it's just another case of if he just would have seen it then you know a lot could have been avoided yeah and i wish they'd made more on a similar note of the fact that wolf quite rightly points out uh yeah but captain you're the arbiter of succession so you're already involved <laughs> you you are literally the one putting gowron on the throne because that's the job you've been tasked with and picard very you know he, he's very clever around the idea of look i'll do that job in all the duties that are you know required of me i will you know elect gowron put him on and then my responsibility is over I'm out of there. That's that's the entire purview of that job. Beyond that, I have nothing that I have to do. But like you said, it is kind of weird that uh, he doesn't realize you're still interfering, whichever way you look at it, because you took that job and you, you have to do that, you know? So, yeah, it, it's interesting that it provides that, but I wish there was a little bit more of Worf pushing back against Picard's, like, I'm interfering, but only because I kind of have to in this matter a little bit and because it's part of your traditions or your laws or whatever, but then that's all I'm going to do. So <clears throat> that relates to my next point, which is the truly shocking moment for me when the Bortas comes under attack and Picard just basically moves the Enterprise away, saying that they just can't get involved in a Klingon civil war in a matter that's internal. And I'm like, that for some reason, that scene, I hate that scene. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true. I know it probably is the right and the moral thing to do and the legal thing and everything, but it's so painful to watch, you know? Same. And uh, yeah, would you guys he say had the same? A look. To... Yeah, he had a look that crossed his face like, oh, this is going to be difficult. But yet he seemed to just, you know, warp out of there so easily. I was surprised. It seemed unlike him to leave a crew member behind. Yeah. And again, it begs a lot of questions about what could have happened. Like if one of the Duras loyal birds of prey had opened fire on the Enterprise, would they defend themselves or would they just flee I think, that changed, <laughs> I think that would have changed the game you know i think i think what we saw in picard and sandra you're so right that look on his face was brilliant like that's that's peak patrick stewart right there because you know what what i what i know because of my work and what i do is there's there's what you want to do there's what you should do and then there's what you have to do and those things don't always line up and i think that was that situation and in a split second he communicated that with his face he did the right thing mm. Um, had he done anything, um, they now he, he even said that he has committed the Federation to the side of Galron or vice versa. But had the, one of the Duras ships turned and fired on the Enterprise, I think that changes the game. At that point, they have pulled them in. They've made the statement. Um, and then he has to defend himself um, mm. and, and, and the ship. But I think, uh, gosh, it, it, it's the prime directive um argument you know here's this planet with this thing going on and we could we could we could beam one thing down to the planet in four seconds and save billions of lives yeah but they're but they're not warp capable so we're gonna let them die and it's hard but based on the federation's culture and and their their uh, charter that's that's the right thing for them to do 
Yeah, it's interesting because it gives you a lot to discuss, but I also see the point of view of, of a lot of people, and myself included, that at times the Prime Directive does kind of make the Federation look like dicks. Yeah, totally, <laughs> when, totally. Yeah, but uh, it, is, it is a question of greater good and that these things have obviously been worked out as, as what has to be done because of the contamination that can happen. And even in this situation, like you said, you don't want to pull the Federation into a war where they, you know, pledge allegiance to one side or the other, and then ultimately they're responsible for for a, a, a conflict that has nothing to do with them initially until they can prove that there are other factors involved, which, as you said, it, it improves a lot with part two when you realize that Picard isn't just doing away and ignoring the situation. He's like, we're going to go, but I'm going to prove that the Romulans are interfering, so... Therefore, you know, we'd be justified in doing the same. We won't, but that way we can point out, yo, guys, you know. It is ironic how, like, the whole justification for not acting is that the Duras would end the alliance with the Federation and make everything, you know, go south. Yeah. And then if we fast forward to Way of the Warrior, it's Gowron who ends the the alliance with the Federation. Exactly, but it's like I said, the benefit of hindsight is uh-huh. uh, is incredible because it's, yeah, you can look at it as like, yeah, and that does happen, but it's Gowron that does it. The irony is, but even as you said, it, it there was a chance that by not defending the Bortas, you know, ultimately Duras and the Romulan support would have won, and then, again, you've lost the Klingon alliance because you didn't interfere. Yeah, so and worse, the, you're the, at war because you, you yeah. you've, you've aggressed against them. Yeah, exactly. But um, like, and then it becomes a question of, well, why didn't you act when you could, Picard? By not doing something to defend Calron, who we knew was our ally, you've kind of condemned us. So, yeah, it's a very weird. As you said, it's a tightrope to walk, and it provides such rich discussion. And I do kind of love that there isn't really a, a one correct answer, but Picard probably does do the the best thing he can do, which is to prove that you know they're not just really epic leaders; they're getting a lot of help. <laughs> I like to use the phrase, he does the most right thing in that moment. Yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And uh, I think uh, there's a line, maybe at the start of part two, which sums it up when they say that the Duras are winning and somebody says that some would say they have better leadership. And then I think Wolf responds with, some would say they must be getting help. (laughs) And I'm like, huh, interesting that you just, you can't accept that they're good leaders and do you have proof as to this? Or uh, is it just that they're not on your side? Because again, it would have been nice to see a little bit of how are these engagements going and how how is the help actually aiding them in any real way? Yeah. But uh, you don't have time for that in just, you know, an hour and a half, I guess. So either of you, what do you think of this idea of the tachyon detection grid? To detect because it's it's techno bubble, but it's sensible enough, understandable techno bubble, which is force field, Romulan ships can't go through it. That's all we need to know. <laughs> or or we'd be able to detect something going through yeah. it. Yeah. Well, We're I not going to address the fact that space has literally infinite directions, but never mind. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hey, let's go this way. Let's just go over here. Done. Problem solved. We have a fleet of 20 ships. Okay, then we'll just go the 21 ships wide. <laughs> yep. <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense when you stop and think about it, but again, you kind of, you have to assume they've blockaded the entire border somehow and any other thing would be an act of war because they'd be going in the wrong place or something. I don't know. I was literally I thinking about the road construction happening just up the street from me where it's like, hey, wow, this makes it impossible to get through here. So instead, I go this way. Okay, <laughs> problem solved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, no, as I said, there must be some kind of treaty or reason why they can't do it. But no, Sandra, you were saying, why did you, uh, why did you like that idea of the detection grid? Other than the, the obvious, you know, that it's a clever oh, way to 
defeat. Just say I love tachyons and any time that they actually do get into the this some sort of science in the the science fiction. I, I do love that. Yeah, that's fair enough. Awesome. Um Again, related to kind of what we've been talking about with uh, Picard, it, it's kind of weird that he asks Gowron to help him spring the trap at the end for his for all his, like, we can't interfere, because he kind of asks Gowron to push at the Duras sisters so that they call for Romulan support so that they have to try and cross the net. And it's kind of like, hmm, it's very weird where you draw the line, Picard, that you're, you're happy to do with it here and interfere, but... Again, in part one, you were just like, nah, let them get destroyed if they have to. I couldn't care. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do. Again, there's character moments to talk about that we'll get into later, but I do kind of love the way that everyone deals with their own things, whether it be Data or Wolf or Picard. Uh, but I will say the last thing on the plot is that, and again, this is really nerdy, and it's the, the thing that always bugs me when it comes to Starfleet is that Worf gets his commission back very easily, <laughs> just straight back to Lieutenant from nowhere. No regard for the fact he's probably killed tons of Klingons <laughs> if he's been away. Just like, well, well welcome back, you know. <laughs> so. He was on vacation. I, I, I bet <laughs> Picard didn't even get into the logs. He wasn't on vacation. He resigned. He, I, he gave his no, equivalent of badge leave. and gun. He was on leave when he resigned, so... I think, oh, I, th no. No. I think Sandra's right. I think that he resigned, but Picard just never, he's like, okay, I'll hold on to this communicator. I know what's up. <laughs> I love that idea that you both have Picard as some sneaky, like, uh, I'm not accepting that resignation, but all right. <laughs> yeah, much. I love it. <laughs> cool. Fair enough. Uh, so then uh, the next thing to do would be to talk about the acting and the character moments that we've kind of alluded to. And uh, Jeff, you said you had something for uh, for this. So, what did you want to bring up first? Just just that whole resignation scene. I think this was such a high water mark for for Picard. When um, so so Worf's on leave. He's taking a leave of absence so he can do this stuff. And then they get to the loggerheads where it's like, I want to do this thing, and Picard's like, You can't. You're a Starfleet officer. And then Worf's like, No, I'm not. Boom. And what I loved about that is I'm 100% sure that Picard knew exactly what was going to happen. Okay. He set, he set it up in a way so that Worf was essentially able to resign and leave with, a, you know, with, his, with his head held high. And he set up that honor guard on the way down um, to just drive home. I think, what he, I think Picard, Picard throughout this whole two-parter was such a supporter of Worf and Worf the person not just Worf the Starfleet officer but Worf the person and his relationship with him shone through and in the in that moment he reminded him that he had a home on the Enterprise mm. you know you you have your notions of honor and we have ours just know that you will always be able to have honor here on the Enterprise and set it up I fully believe he never logged it and Worf went off and did his stuff. And then when he came back, it was like, hey, well, if he dies, um, I can you know, say he died in the line of duty doing amazing things. If he comes back, well, he's right back to work and ready to go. I think that moment to me was just like, I want to work for a dude like Picard. That guy is so great. <laughs> well, you know, this is supported by the very beginning of the first episode. Picard is egging Worf on. Like totally. Worf is like, uh, well, in this matter, I think patience is a virtue. And Picard's like, Are you sure this doesn't yeah, he, need a more he literally uses the word, response? yeah. It requires a Klingon response. You're absolutely right. That's a good point. Yeah. 
Like, you should kick their ass. They've been talking shit about your family, man. You can't just let that go. <laughs> oh, man, if only the scene had went down like that and Picard went all street and it became like an episode of The Wire. Like, they, they've been shit-talking your family, Wolf. <laughs> we got to pop a cap and nickling on ass. Can't just let us go, man. <laughs> That's ultimately what it boils down to, though, isn't it? It's like, uh, the question in my honor, you, you you got my hands tied, chief. Here's my badge and gun. I'm quitting. <laughs> well, I think Patrick Stewart's great, and he's, I think, uh, the way he, he does prompt Wolf to that challenge, but then he also faces down Gowron with such determinedness when he's like, I'm not going to step outside of the role of Arbiter, so, you know, don't test me, basically. <laughs> and uh, even the way that when Toral kind of first appears to make his claim, there's like a haunted look. On Patrick Stewart's face of like, oh, excrement is heading towards fan blades now. <laughs> I love this. And uh, yeah, the way he explains he's kind of in a no-win scenario and doing the best things he can. And then the sheer kind of, you know, almost joy when he, he, he realizes he's got the Romulans and that's the end of it, you know. So uh, And then again, on an acting level, the, the scenes with Denise Crosby, like I said, for me, are so well acted and fantastic between the two of them as they realize the weight of what's being said. So uh that's as much as I can say about Patrick Stewart, anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, did the you guys have about, anything? Or? Yeah, one bit of acting that bothered me a little bit, but he was being quintessential data. But when <laughs> he was like just barking orders at the guy who was already questioning him, it's like, Data, couldn't you oh, just no, I love tell that. him a little bit what you're trying to do instead of no. just like, just do it? I, I, I am completely in opposition to you there. I absolutely love that scene because I love that. And so many people are confused by this scene. And and I've, I've been looking in like, you know, responses to the episode in various forums and things. And so many people are like, I hate this because Data displays emotion and he shouldn't have any. And I'm like, you've completely missed the point. It's not really emotion. It's an affectation because that's the leadership that he's seen other people do. Like he knows the most effective thing here is shut up and get on with it. We're pressed for time and he needs to communicate that quickly. So for me, Spiner acts brilliantly at the whole kind of like, I'm not really angry, but I have to get this across in the way that I've seen people who are genuinely angry kind of, you know, get people's asses in gear. So I really loved that he was like, uh, you know, it, for me, it showed that he he did have the complete package of a captain that they were all doubtful about because even as an android, he's like, you know, push me and I I know how to deal with you, dude. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, what about you? Yeah, I, I do agree with that part because even when, um, you know, he told him basically, you know, I don't think you can be a leader and he, he brought him on anyways and he just kind of shrugged it off. Like that was very data, but I just meant the part where he was just insisting this dude follow his orders when he had a very reasonable explanation for not wanting to do it as in, I don't want to flood those decks with radiation. I mean, but time was of the essence and data had already explained. He was just being obtuse at that point. He was being a dick because data was like, then take them offline and evacuate the decks, but get on with what I've asked you to do. Cause time's a factor. Here. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Hobson, it's weird. Cause yeah. Hobson was a, Hobson was a bigot and a racist. Like I, I need to yeah, start exactly. what I'm going to say with he that. Was. Like, yes. yeah. And that was, and, and, but what I, but he, I think he knows that about himself, and that's part of why he tendered his resignation, right? Like, I'm not going to work here for you because I'm not. And, and that there's a bigger Starfleet question there. But, um, but I want to caveat that from that point forward, Hobson was right and Data was wrong. Um, you're right, time was of the essence, but this is all it would have taken. Captain, this thing is happening. If we do this, this Lieutenant Commander Hobson, I need you to pay attention to me. I understand how to solve this problem. Time is of the essence, and I need you to follow my orders. If he had there said that, there we go. said that, it would have been fine. Because I think the theme, 
was highlighted best with Data and Hobson. And this is the theme of, of both the episodes. And it is that it's not just what you do, it's how you do what you do that matters. That's what makes Starfleet and separates the Federation from the Klingon Empire, the Romulan Empire, the Cardassians. They care and it matters how they do things. And in that moment, the way Data did the right and the brilliant and amazing thing was the wrong way. He did it in a way that completely stepped on the expertise of every single person around him, completely disrespected them. And I think that what this episode was missing more than anything else was a two-minute follow-up between Data and Picard, where Picard basically said, you're brilliant, that was amazing, that's what I would expect from a science or tactical officer. That is not how a commanding officer behaves. See, I think I, I actually think that you got that scene, but that it kind of feeds into the way I viewed the situation, which is Data's like, okay, I disobeyed orders because it was important, but, you know, orders are orders, and so I, I I'm submitting myself for disciplinary action. And Picard quite rightly says, look, the phrase, I was only following orders, has justified too many tragedies. Starfleet doesn't just want people that will blindly follow orders. They want people that will get the job done. And I really love that when Picard, his actual response is, Data, nicely done. Yeah, but that's yeah. what Data was expecting Hobson to do, to blindly follow his orders. Yep. Mm. Exactly. The, the, the how matters here. And Picard missed that point as well. Because like, so one of the, the key, so I, I, I served in the United States Navy on a submarine a very long time ago, and I did not see combat. So I want to own that up front. But what I know is even in our drills, there were times someone had to run in and just tell us what to do. And we just right. did it. But it was always either is always a precursor of listen i need this to happen there's stuff going on boom and we go and then there was always a follow-up of here's why i came at you and told you to do these things they still treated us as people with agency and decision making abilities data did okay. not data expected people to act as automatons but if you, he's, like, if you... he's like i know everybody's gonna be okay. i know everybody's gonna be okay in the end and i don't care to impart that wisdom on you you're just going to have to kill everybody on decks three and four. I, I don't see it like that. But I, if, if you forgive me if this comes off confrontational, but if you let me propose something for a second, it would be the question of how how much are we owed kindness to bigots who have already literally said, I don't like what you are, so I won't serve you. And now you're like, well, therefore, we now have to stop and hold his hand and tell him exactly what we're doing. It's like well, maybe let's not if he, prove him right. Let's not if he hadn't, him. but he'd already shown who he was. If he hadn't already been incredibly bigoted and petty, then your point is valid. But for me, it's kind of like this guy is he's out to get you one way or the other. And like I said, he is he is racist, whichever way you, you look at it. It's like nothing you can do is right because of what you are. So but I don't, but I don't think it's about <laughs> Hobson. I think it's about the crew. There were other people on the bridge that were he was expecting to do things. So you can mm -hmm. absolutely make that argument of what do I owe? Hobson in this case, but also Data's the one who refused to accept his resignation. He's the one who accepted the state as it was yeah. and also left the rest of the crew to just, hey, this guy who just literally just strolled onto the bridge, um, I now have to like kill kill my crewmates without having any idea for why. Well, they weren't, they, it should be said, they weren't actually killing anybody. This is, this is right, where right. The, the nuance gets lost, is that that was never going to be the case. Nobody was really in danger. And, you know, the, it's only through the bigotry of Hobson that that became an issue of like, oh, you're going to kill people because we're not, you, you don't value life. And 
that that within itself is a question of why would you assume data doesn't value life you you just assumed he was going to be willing to kill people and that is well, again a leap of it's because like, he was willing to kill people without explaining the why he he never said why he was going to do this thing he just expected them to do what he said i don't think he and, was ever willing to kill people personally. is hobson still a racist after that experience maybe not when he saw later you know that that data did have lives in mind and that he wasn't just you know trying to come out on top or trying to be the winner but you know he did consider all those options and that was yeah. a part of his decision and that might have changed hobson a little bit um, I kind of, I, I don't love that though, because to Jeff's point, I kind of agree with, that is the one thing I will say is that as soon as Hobson was like, I'm bigoted, I'm tendering my resignation, Data should have immediately accepted it and went like, yeah, you don't, there's no place in Starfleet for you then. Yeah. <laughs> You've clearly picked up the entirely wrong thing from everything we've been trying to teach you, so off you go. The, I think that would have been the <laughs> ideal response. But to Sandra's point, I think, like, like, have that debrief afterwards where it's like, look, not only did I consider everything, but I considered everything in a billionth of a nanosecond because that's what i bring to the table i even yeah, considered true. things you weren't capable of thinking or or think like i was able to go out to the nth degree right and and consider all these impacts in in part of a second and came up with this course of action so here you go yeah. this is why i'm great in this role but we never got that scene we just we got a moment of hobson kind of looking and nodding like oh turns out you're smart Look at that. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, right before I would venture the reason he did accept Hobson and want Hobson on his team is because right before that, he had just listed, uh, he had just accessed. I love how data does the little eye flick and, you know, he's like accessing, you know, information. Yeah. He's like, um, you know, gave all his accolades and why he's just such a great first officer and, you know, he why it's so great that he's there. Um, you know, it can be I, that I, great I, if he's also a bigot, though. <laughs> <laughs> would would be my counter to that is like i don't care how many commendations you've got ultimately you show what kind of person you are in your day-to-day -day actions and the second he showed that to data it was like well you're gone you don't get a second chance in that situation you know um but again that's you know that that's what i would do it's a very different situation i would be a very different captain naturally so well, it's what it's what uh, kirk did in balance of terror when exactly, dude, yeah. yeah he kicked dude off the bridge because he was being racist to spock you know and so i think there's real precedent for that and i think like if we really wanted to, to to you know go back and do the the right rewrite on this it would be helping data be a better leader it would have been helping data accept the resignation and just say yep you're right uh dude over here you're my first officer now let's go yeah exactly like you haven't got quite as many commendations as him but at least you're not racist so yeah, and you probably will <laughs> have as many commendations after we're done with this because we're brilliant and we're going to do amazing things yeah exactly regardless of that plot rise though i will say that um timothy carhart played the kind of bigoted jerk that you hate very well and uh brent spiner i think did a fantastic performance as data quickly then about the actors i did want to quickly go through my last notes because it's just one sentence on everyone first of all Whoopi goldberg of course as good as ever her two scenes across the two episodes are just <laughs> epic um Love tony her. todd yeah. absolutely tony todd is brilliant as kern because again he's just a brilliant actor and a great cool. genre actor so anytime kern's in the stories you know you're gonna get some great stuff the duras sisters are probably the best thing in this because it would be so easy for those characters to turn out ridiculously camp or over the top or portrayed just the wrong side of you know stupid and yet they they balance that perfectly those two actresses with being believable being scary 
having that sense of like playfulness, but never coming off as a pantomime villain for me. So... And I think, and I think too, not only being scary, but being scared. Like yeah. in that moment when the Romulan aid doesn't come through and stuff's falling apart, they're just like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, and then just beam away and leave Toronto. <laughs> exactly. I loved that. I loved that. That was great. Yeah, because it shows again in just one action, it shows exactly the kind of people they are. Like, you, you know, you you were handy for us, but now we're saving our own skin. We don't care, you know. But uh, yeah, I love that. Having said that, I do think the actor, the young actor playing Toral for me was not great. He was the one kind of weak link in the acting because there was very precocious child actor vibes for me coming from him. Do you um, know? Do you know why I actually liked him? Okay, I think. I think he and Hobson brought us a, a similar quality uh, that was All necessary right. for their characters. And that is, I desperately wanted to punch them in the face. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair enough. I, can, I can't disagree with you on there. And uh, yeah, my last note, just before I ask you guys for any thoughts, is something that Sandra brought up off air, which is Robert O'Reilly, just iconic. He steals almost every scene he's in because Robert O'Reilly as Gowron is just, he's a living meme. You know, so... You can't go wrong with him. <laughs> he is great, but I, having not gone back to his TNG episodes for a while and, and you know, seeing him in DS9 and, and he plays Gowron a little bit differently and I it was kind of <laughs> jarring to see him. It's funny you mentioned Shakespeare that this first episode because like his first lines, he's like, mm, Picard, I must speak with you if we are to move quickly, if we are to be successful, we must move quickly. And it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> like oh, see, I, I think the opposite. I think when he when he goes to DS9, I think that's when he starts overacting, not in a terrible way, but it's like when you reach DS9, I think he's realized he can be broad, and that's when you get the big bulging eyes and the like, glory to you and your house. Well, it's exactly <laughs> that right there. You have this gruffness in your voice when you think of him, of, of Gowron, uh, just like Worf has a deep voice and all the Klingons have this deep voice. And here he is coming out like he's classically trained, putting on a play with his English accent. It's It was just weird to hear. I didn't see it, but I can understand where you're coming from. And it probably is just because this is like the first time he's played the character, really. So. Quickly, Picard, quickly. In preventing a Klingon civil war. Yes. <laughs> It's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> I'm all for the full Shakespearean dialogue. Uh, anyway, so did you guys have any last notes on the actors before we move to the next thing? I, I just had that I thought the acting was great. I, I, I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone really should. I mean, even in the scene, this almost sounds ridiculous, but in the transporter room when Crusher and Troy are just like standing there, <laughs> even in that moment, they're just like, oh my God, like look at Worf. He's going. Like they, they were able to impart real emotion in that like four yeah. seconds. Gravity. Definitely. And that's very hard without even having a line of dialogue. But yeah, they did. They did a good job. I would agree. Awesome. Uh, so the next thing that I want to look at would be direction. I only have a few things about this that we haven't already talked about. Um, so if you'd let me take the lead, perhaps I'll, I'll kind of, we can spring off from there. The first note I have is uh, I like the scene of Guinan and Wolf doing the target practice because it's very well directed, but also it's just a really good scene. <laughs> uh, it's funny. It has all the right kind of notes of humor of Guinan. Like I can come down to that level and completely whooping Wolf as he gets more and more frustrated, but then completely departing exactly the right kind of information. <laughs> So again, I just I love Gaiden anyway. <laughs> but yeah, that and the uh, reveal of the yesterday's Enterprise plot basically to Picard were both really good, very well directed uh, actors scenes. I think. Uh, would you guys agree? Absolutely, because especially with any time you're with Gaiden, 
it slows the pace and everything becomes very deliberate and thoughtful. And so I do really love that. But you're right, the the humor in there where, um, you know, Guinan's like, oh, yeah, I could I could come down to level 14, no problem. And, and how she's like hitting every target and he's upset and frustrated and he's missing, but he's hearing her. You know, and, yes. and of course, that's when Alexander's brought up briefly and, and she's, you know, just trying to get him to um, reconcile his two halves and that that's OK. I love the physical yeah. acting, too, where, like he said, I'll come down to level 14 and he's like trying and she's just oh, occasionally yeah. flicking her wrist like eh, whatever. He's getting it. more and more frustrated and like visibly. <laughs> and she's just like, la da 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 conversation. <laughs> and then just further adds more to the mystery of Guinan, too. That, course, yeah. that was just like the greatest ongoing, uh, not a gag, but, you know, gag, so to speak, that just adding yeah. more and more mystery and never really explaining everything fully. Yeah, but even then you get enough because you get that moment when she's leaving of don't feel bad. I've been doing this a lot longer than you have. Uh -huh. And this is before we've had Time's Arrow. So we didn't even know at this point she's lived for like hundreds of years. It's what I love but, yeah. about her and the Elorians is that like, we, it's still a mystery. We still don't yeah, have all. And, and I hope we never do. You know, no, it's exactly, like, yeah. yeah, just give us the pieces we need. Let Guinan and the Elorians move at the speed of plot for us. Whatever you need. <laughs> cool. The only other couple of notes that I have, first of all, we've already mentioned a lot of the recycled footage for the battles, but I think it works really well. Uh, the new stuff, I think, melds quite well with the old, and it's always good seeing that sort of cinematic quality Klingon ship fights anyway for me. So, yeah. That says a I lot about it. the quality of just how they produce the next generation. You know, that it definitely it, it was, I won't say it was seamless. You know, no, like you but, could, but it was still like it melded really fine. I remember, so I, I, I was, uh, I watched Next Generation in first run as a kid, you know, like from go. And yeah. I can remember sitting there watching it with my mom and I, I, I watched the original series and I thought it looked ridiculous, you know, like even then in the 80s and 90s, like, oh my gosh. And I remember watching the Next Generation and just being like, special effects will never look better than this. This is <laughs> so amazing. And, uh, you know, history has proven me wrong, but moments like that where they intercut those cinematic, uh, those cinematic scenes and it's pretty seamless, I think really supports my theory that like, yeah, honestly, th this is, this is, these are galaxy class special effects here. Anyway, and the practical no, uh, effects are very good. I love, I love that. Klingons. Yeah. There are so many Klingons in this, and this is for me, the Klingon classic look and, um, not easy to do. Um, and then they did screw up on on the kid, uh, but everybody else, it just like the the makeup is done so well. Yeah, definitely, including the cleavage and with the, the kid. <laughs> <laughs> I remember first seeing that and one because in a way, it looked like they look like Muppet boobs. Uh, <laughs> but alternatively, they would like turn a certain way and. Um, Maybe they are real boobs, but I mean, pretty much everybody was obsessed with that portrayal of a, of a female Klingon. We hadn't seen them that much. And just the, that they could be sexy and that it was hard for people to accept that they felt that way about an alien species, a Klingon. But I do know it caused a lot of conflict within people when it first mm. came out. Yeah. I, I I had no conflict. I was I was very aware what I was feeling when I watched it. Like I said, I was like fifteen or sixteen when I first saw it. I was I was not in any kind of conflict. 
But anyway. <laughs> like, I will join House Duras. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, the attempted seduction scenes of Worf when they're like, you could be made it to beta. Yes, please. <laughs> Done. <laughs> it's just so hilarious that in the day at the time, it was just such a thing. Well, it was Star Trek. People weren't really used to any kind of revealingness, I guess, in that way. But uh, Well, I think yeah. that's the story of Star Trek, you know, all the way from the original series with Kirk and Uhura up to, uh, you know, Dax and oh, up to Picard being bald, you know, yeah. and then Dax. <laughs> the, the story of Star Trek is being just far ahead enough, uh, far ahead enough on the curve that even its fandom gets offended. Yeah, but no, I did want to bring that up. So what did you guys think of the two attempted sort of seduction scenes, for want of a better word, whether it be Picard at first and then Worf when the Dura sisters are trying to lure them over with their various wiles? I love that they fall back to that, even as as much warriors as they are. Like they wouldn't, you know, have any qualms about drawing blood and going to hand-to-hand combat i love that they recognize that that's something that's work you know works for them and that that's part of their bigger plans of subterfuge like well this is the first thing you know we, we see this is going awry and, and then they fall back on that and um uh they they failed both times but i just i just thought it was um just it's one of the unique things they have to offer in the ways of subterfuge that all of these men in this uh, arena don't have. So that's yeah, very interesting. To, uh, to go back to the metaphor that they bring up, I think it is, it's very Lady Macbeth in that it's them acknowledging yeah. we can't really stand toe to toe with these badass warriors, but we have something they haven't got. And it's not just cleavage with a K. So we can, you know, use our various gifts to try and lure people to our side. And that would be our benefit would be, you know, yeah. Now, to be clear, physically, I think they could. Physically, I think they could. But because it was a patriarchal yeah. society, they could not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly not meaning to, to you know, to, to denigrate them, them or call them weak in any way. But I think it's kind of more that they wouldn't. That wouldn't be their first res- response would be that we can take on, you know, 20 invading warriors. It would be why. Why put in that effort when we can, you know, lure them onto exactly. our side instead? <laughs> More brains, less brawn. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think the best line that encapsulated all of that was Picard walking out and just being like, and the tea was excellent. Thank you. Excellent tea. <laughs> he's like, yeah. he's like, I, I am acknowledging your seduction efforts. You did an excellent job. Um, not not going to happen, though. So thank you. <laughs> and I exactly. think the tea really was good because he's just been having that replicator tea for a while. I, I believe they actually had the leaves. Yeah, he's like, this is this is fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, uh, that bar scene in the Capitol where the Klingons were like, yeah, we, we're going to go kill each other, but we're still Klingons, so we're going to hang out and you know do things. Not only was that a brilliant scene and a really great concept to explore, but the mm. soundtrack in that was unique in, in in that Star Trek thing. I think that I think that's the first time we ever really even saw Klingons like in that setting before. So I think the the way they built the scene itself, but the score to it specifically, really just gave it a very different feeling that I thought was great and really well done. Yeah, and it was really weird for me to see the actor Michael G. Haggerty, R.I.P. as a Klingon in that scene because. I know him from so many just random roles as, as background characters in sitcoms and stuff. Um, you might know him as the building superintendent from Friends, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yep, but here he is in, in full Klingon makeup oh, and gear. Regalia. Yeah, I was like, wow, it really is him. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I like Everybody. how it like, underscores this idea that the average Klingon, they leave the thinking to the politicians, you know, 
and they really don't hate each other. They've just on a side because that's the side their family is on. And when it's time to fight, they fight, but then here they're drinking. It's just, you know, they're not at work right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, no, there is something about that though. It is, it's a fascinating concept when it's like, we will kill each other, but this is neutral ground. So let's drink and be warriors together kind of thing. It's cool. Like the continental. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, in John Wick, yeah. So, Absolutely. But no, you've reminded me of something that I, I, I did have this in the behind the scenes, but I must have skipped it, which is that during the filming of these episodes, apparently the then president, Ronald Reagan, visited the set and uh, he was asked what he thought of the Klingons and apparently gave the response, I like them. They remind me of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, well, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but we do kind of do this where I ask you your favorite character, your favorite moment in these episodes, then your favorite line. Spark. Uh, and let's go, Sandra. You, you've done this before, I think, so we'll come to you first. Who's your favorite character in these episodes? Um, in these episodes, um, I think it doesn't make sense, but my, my favorite character is Gowron. I mean, I think it makes sense just in that, um, you know, he was big in the episode, um, but it's not that I think he's my favorite character because I know who he becomes um, right. later and DS9 and just seeing the um, over the broad overarching origin of him and, and where he comes in and that he's uh, he is a Klingon that stops and thinks and, you know, can control his emotions a bit um, for, for his political ambitions. And um, that's a new kind of Klingon that we haven't seen mm -hmm. before. And so it's very interesting. But if I were to really back up and say within the episodes themselves and who had, you know, just like the really good lines, a really good story, I, it's Worf as, um, you know, my favorite here. So what about you, Jeff? Who would be your favorite character from the Redemption? Is, is it fair to say that my favorite character is Lursa and Bator? Just like the two absolutely, of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they are a unit. They never uh -huh. really operate independently. So, <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I just think. I mean, and, and again, this is kind of looking, you know, to the future a little bit, but what they do. But even without that, in this episode, they show up so fully formed, so unique. We've never seen a character like this before in in, in Star Trek specifically, but as as Klingons specifically, uh, mm. just brilliant. I think I thought they were they were just such a great introduction to to the Star Trek uh, to the Star Trek world. I feel awesome. what you're saying there, yeah. Yeah, and I, I would say that both of those are things that I considered and that came very close to being my choice, but ultimately I went with Picard because I think it's it's intriguing that he makes the tough choices, he finds the workarounds, and ultimately he stays moral while also winning. Plus, I just love his legendary cheek, as you've already pointed out, with the whole, like, excellent tea, by the way. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I kind of love that. So, um, favorite moment in the episode, Sandra, or scene? What, what would be yours? Um, one that we did touch on already, and I think it might be someone else's, but um, that scene um, when they were doing target practice between Guinan and Worf because of um, her helping him settling conflict on the inside because, you know, the outside was everything happening was so chaotic and tornadic, and he had a definitive choice to make. And um, I think she was telling him kind of like how it happened in the episode, you know, you don't have to be one or the other. You yes. are both. And yeah, he did yeah. get to go do his Klingon stuff, uh, restore his family name, 
um, take his place in the history and in this moment. And he ended up still a Starfleet officer. Then he returned to his duties and, you know, the conflict, while it never ends, it was settled. And, um, and that was a pivotal moment for that. But then also just um, loving Gaiden and how she imparts wisdom. And it's almost like this book, um, uh, forgive me, but I'll, I'll forget it. But many cultures have it. Just, uh, you know, a special book where you open it up and whatever you read, it applies to your situation. <laughs> yeah, and that's Gaiden for me. I would always, whatever she was saying, I would always take something from that. And it's almost as if she was speaking to me and telling me something I needed to hear in that moment. Yeah. And so that's my favorite wow. scene of this. She is the kind of wise sage character. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what about you, Jeff? What uh, speaks to you as a moment or scene that you preferred the most? I think I really enjoyed um, the seduction of Picard or the attempted seduction of Picard. Because again, I think to your earlier point, Mike, like this is this episode, these episodes are peak Picard. Like he yeah. is just on. And I think in that moment, like he had that level of discomfort um, and they were just laying it on so thick. And, and like, I, I feel like, again, we talked about his physical acting, like his facial acting. And there were times where like in his head, he's just like, yeah, I might die here. Um, but you know what? I'm not going to let that show. I'm going to stick with yeah. this. I'm going to go and I'm going to, and to you know, the earlier point, I'm going to enjoy this tea just, just yeah. enough on there. I, I think there is a to me, there's a degree of him sort of like, I understand you're trying to put me on the back foot by making me uncomfortable. So I'm going to show that I'm perfectly comfortable. Exactly. Even if inside I might be internally screaming, I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of knowing that you're making me embarrassed or anything. And I love that he can kind of stay so resolute against that. I love it. I feel like this experience gave him what he needed to be so resolute against Gold Madrid, right? When he was yeah. being tortured, he's like, yeah, this is rough and you're treating me terribly. But I mean, I got through the Dura sisters, so I can make it through this. <laughs> My favorite scene, I actually had written down the two Guinan scenes, but since you picked one, I'll go with the uh, the yesterday's Enterprise explanation scene, because again, it was just, it's Whoopi Goldberg being great and delivering what is effectively exposition really well, and in a way that moves the plot forward and gives the characters the motivation that they need, particularly Picard, uh, but it's also just a really good, well-acted scene. So, yeah, uh, awesome. Uh, so then we come to your favorite line now then. And uh, Sandra, what's your favorite line in these episodes? This piece of Bakhtak is Captain Larg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that. Nice. Laugh out loud. I love when they speak um, like here where I'm from. You know, there's a Tex-Mex vernacular where um, Spanish and English is used, um, you know, interchangeably mm. words here. And it, it was just kind of like please tell me the Klingons have that exact same thing. It's, it's <laughs> probably it's <yeah>. Klinglish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah, cool. Uh, what about you, Jeff? Do you have one that springs to mind a line? I do. Uh, and, it, and it's such a fly, like flies right past you line. And uh, Riker and Picard are talking and Riker's like, nicely done, Captain. I hope you know what we're doing. And then Picard says, yeah, so do I, number one. So do I. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Now you said it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my favorite line, I'm so glad we haven't stepped on it because we've been skirting around it so much with various discussions. Um, but my favorite line is from Picard when he says to the Dura sisters, you have manipulated the circumstances with the skill of a Romulan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is the perfect kind of checkmate. Uh -huh. 
like I know what you're doing it's not gonna work and I was like oh that is just brilliant and the fact that like you said he tops that up with excellent tea (laughs) (laughs) yep he's he's definitely coming away from that uh, encounter with the upper hand for for sure so uh, awesome uh, well, all that would be left for us to do then is to give our conclusions. But before that, we do throw things open to our audience to ask what you think of the episode. Uh, I have a few responses from Instagram and various Facebook groups here this week. Uh, so I like to call this section uh, Subspace Communications. Incoming transmission. Um, let me just uh, read out what I've got here then. Uh, this is from our Facebook groups. John Robinette says, I like the episodes, but I appreciate DS9's more lengthy coverage of their Klingon wars. The Klingon Civil War feels like a major enough event to last more than two episodes, but they are two great episodes in my book. Agree. Uh, Jeremy David Heiser says, a great two-parter and the opening to a fantastic season. I find that Next Gen had great potential for these bigger political plots, and Worf was always a great character for exploring Klingon narratives. No, no argument here. Uh, Ryan Levenger says this is probably my favorite TNG two-parter. Gotta love Klingon episodes, and this was a great continued look into their culture and Worf's story. Plus, it touched on a lot of other threads, including the Klingon leadership Duras stories, Worf's personal journey and family, and yesterday's Enterprise. It's got action, intrigue, character development, and plot twists. Add to that date as amazing command performance and handling facing down racism slash speciesism, and there's nothing not to like about this episode. The only sad part is that if they'd had the VFX tech from a few years later used in DS9, they could have really made the Klingon battles a spectacle to behold. I think they work anyway. I like the model effects personally, but uh, yeah. Uh, Stephanie Hull says, I was so happy to see Denise Crosby again. I'd read all the behind the scenes stuff and knew how unsatisfied she was with how Tasha had been written. So I was glad she got a role she could sink her teeth into. I got to work as her handler at a very small con in Kansas City and she was amazing. At the end, she kissed my cheek and called me her bitch and I got her autograph on a picture of Sela. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had nothing but good experiences with uh, with Denise Cosby and the, the one interaction that I had on Cameo when she offered a free Cameo to anybody during the pandemic and uh, made me want to help me deal with my anxiety at the time. That's so uh, cool. Yeah, she, she, she quickly regretted it because she was like, because of everything that's going through, I'll, I'll do it for free if you just send a request in. And then like three days later, I was like, sorry, guys, I have to now put a stop to this. We've reached like 3,000 requests or oh, something, wow. and I have to re- make my way through these free Cameos. So. I felt bad for a bless. <laughs> anyway, um, I think this comes from Instagram. Yeah, Gregory M. Chain just says, I really like the way Data was the captain of the USS Sutherland. I don't know why there was no captain already there, but all of a sudden there was an opening for Data to take command. And 62 Punks Rule CW says, uh, yeah, a wharf teaming with his brother Kern uh, was great. Fantastic episodes and arc. And that's it for the audience feedback for this episode. So, as I said, we will launch into our conclusion and our score out of five Starfleet Deltas. And we always go to the guests first. So uh, let's, Sandra, you you must be prepared with a conclusion and a score for me. Because <laughs> I'm the most guestiest of the guests. You've done this enough times during the uh, the <laughs> film podcast that I know you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I really liked this episode. Uh, you know, the end of season four, beginning of season five, the next generation had already found its legs, you know, the last couple of seasons. So we're already really invested in these characters. And for us, this is our comfort food every day. I, I, we're coming back to this uh, show for that, for these characters. And then they just opened up a whole new layer uh, with, you know, delving more into the Klingons. I mean, it had been brought up before. We've been on this journey with Worf, but uh, really to get into the meat of it and to make it um, open it up more for this ongoing saga. And and so it did bring us 
uh, back for season five, even though we can all agree that the uh, reveal of Denise Crosby was a bit, in, in retrospect, a bit melodramatic. But at the time, we were so happy to see her again. And um, the themes in this that were explored, um, all the, the hard science, the philosophical conflict within Worf, I just really liked the episodes for, for all those reasons. Awesome. And what score would you give it out of five? 4.0. 4.0? So four? Yes. yes. <laughs> awesome. Four out of five from you then. Uh, uh, Jeff, do you have a conclusion on the score out of five? I do. And I, I can't disagree with anything that, that Sandra said. This was just a great episode. And I think to just to, without restating all the great things that she already said, I think what I just so loved about this and where it highlights what a great, uh, just great property Star Trek is, period but how well tng really really formed took what the original series took and then was like kind of next leveled it was and we've talked about it a few times in here there there really were no right answers mm. through this whole thing uh there were more right answers in specific moments but i just love when tv and sci-fi specifically mm -hmm. can put situations like this in front of you and so masterfully uh, with incredible characters, character development, the construction of the episodes, um, just fantastic. This was was really great. It built on themes and stories that had been going on. And as we said before, the ramifications of these episodes carry through through at least an entirely you know a, an entirely different series as well. Is really yeah. good. I do think um, I shared. I like. I you could. I, I was I was honestly surprised when Sela showed. I, it's been a while since I've watched these episodes, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I guess Sela was in this one too." There's that. Okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I I I don't hold that against the episode in any way, but it's just kind of like, oh, I, the one thing that I do hold against these episodes is just that they shoved so much into that second episode. I wish that it, mm. some of those plot points had been given a little more room to breathe and so um i think taking that and then knowing what comes in the future with some of the klingon stuff i don't disagree at all with the uh, with the the person who commented that ds9 kind of did the civil war stuff a little better but uh, yeah. i i'm with sandra this is uh this one gets four from me awesome uh cool well i've got my uh my conclusion already and written so uh, i just said uh, apologies if i go over something that's already been said by the way but uh, it's already pre-written so i said new star trek epic proof that trek always rewarded long-term viewing even in what was considered a purely episodic age multiple threads converge from across all four seasons thus far but into a coherent and mostly focused story I'm a sucker for Klingon honor politics, federation morality conflicts, and examinations of the foolishness of bigotry. So there's lots for me to love here. Uh, the performances are almost universally excellent. The plotting incredibly complex and clever, yet easy to follow. There's plenty of action to break up the cerebral moments as well. My biggest gripe is that the subplots of part two come a little bit out of nowhere and are slightly clunky in their deployment. Uh, as you said, Jeff, basically. So uh, I also think the pacing and structure of the whole piece could have been better, as it really does feel like two disparate parts and less like one cohesive story. But even with these gripes, I find the story interesting, engaging, and watchable, even for the umpteenth time. And I actually went a bit higher. I gave it 4.5 out of 5. Nice. So <clears throat> adding those together and uh, dividing by 3 gives us our average then, uh, which gives Redemption Parts 1 and 2 a final score of 4.17 out of 5. So... Very good. Suffice to say, we were all fans of that <laughs> of the episode. So yeah, it was awesome. a hit. Yes, 
Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I should always. I always forget to say that, considering the name of the podcast. But yes, I think we can safely say it's definitely on the side of hit in the hit or mistakes. So uh, that's fantastic. Right. Well, so that concludes our business. Uh, it's been fantastic. I've genuinely had a really good time because it's always good when we have good episodes to talk about when I could have talked about them. You know, because they're great episodes and you two are great guests, I could have talked for hours, but, you know, people would get bored. <laughs> so that's best probably not to. So, yeah, thank you so much for both being uh, being great guests and both putting in the work and talking about all things Trek and all things nerdy with me. <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah. You're welcome. Jeff, Always uh, a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, Jeff, where can people find you on the internet if they want to? <laughs> oh, thanks. You can get me on Instagram at Jeff T. Aiken or on Twitter. Same thing, Jeff T. Aiken. That's T, uh, Jeff and then T as in Toral, A-K-I-N. <laughs> and you can check out the Starfleet Leadership Academy at starfleetleadership.academy or wherever you get your podcasts. I have to say, whenever I see your handle, um, because it's not like spaced or, or has full stops or capital letters, I always read it as Jeff Taken. And I'm always like, what's he taking? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it's a day-to-day -day thing, what I'm taking. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, I just generally am. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, fantastic work on the podcast as always. And uh, keep up the good work. And again, I would direct you to go there if you're a listener. So awesome. And uh, Sandra, do you have anywhere you want to shout out where people can find you other than our Discord? <laughs> No, yeah, that's pretty much it. But I have to say, I'm very intrigued by this um, Starship, uh, Starfleet leadership stuff. So I'm actually going to check that out. Oh, cool. No, Thanks. you should. Yeah, definitely. Jeff is a, a great guy and a fantastic podcaster and a great Trekkie. So hopefully we can have him on again because the two times we have talked Trek, again, we could have been on for hours. But we had two great things to talk about in this and First Contact. So awesome. And uh, yeah, you can always find uh, all of our information in the episode descriptions, the places you can find me, my usual co-host and uh, the podcast, uh, just all over the internet. And we are in the midst of this first half of our fourth ongoing series, the Klingon themed series. So do join us again next week when we will be joined by Lady Vianne as a returning guest uh, and looking at the Voyager episode, Barge of the Dead. So we're going to get a bit spiritual, I think, next episode. So stay tuned for that one. And uh, let's hope that Vianne can get over her distaste of Klingons and her love of Cardassians long enough to actually talk about the episode. So, yeah, uh, have a great day, everyone. And whatever you're up to, be kind to each other. And remember, we are Starfleet. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. You have been listening to the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash Timeless Journey. The Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast is based on an idea by Michael Wilson and Will Templar. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Home Star Trek Podcast, or look for the Hit or Miss Star Trek podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen, Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening. <laughs>